OTB GAA. You don't just have a speech the Wednesday before a game. You go out and you rile up your team and go out and play the match with fire and brimstone. Now you analyse teams to death. Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. All right, you're very welcome along. It is, I want to say, Wednesday morning. I think I'm nearly 100% sure that it's Wednesday morning. And uh, if you're out there, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. We've got a doozy of a show lined up for you. Loads of rugby. We're going to get the English view ahead of the game this weekend. Matt Dawson's going to join us a little bit later on with Keith Woods. We're obviously going to talk about uh, the Liverpool game tonight. We're going to talk about Erling Haaland. We're going to talk about Cheltenham. And the magic that was about 45 minutes of uh, absolutely incredible racing. Um, Banks Mac with the third and fourth, third and fourth last races, um, and obviously the the Brom heads uh, finding a moment of calm in the midst of the maelstrom. We'll talk about all that with uh, John Duggan a little bit later on. We'd love to hear from you this morning. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. Lots of Rafa Benitez is back in the papers today, talking about the miracle is on. You know, uh, reminding us all of his his very existence. He's very very publicly profile, a uh, very high public profile at the moment. Uh, Nathan, good morning to you. Hey, nice. How's it going? Very well. Um, Shane's here too. Good morning. How are things? Yeah, good. Um, why is Rafa so public? Is, it, is there is, in Rafa's head? Is he a candidate for the Liverpool job when that becomes available again? Is he? No, 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 no. In his head, I'm not asking if it's, if it's real or not. In his head, <laughs> not surely not. He's spent enough time like going around those sort of. Uh, I'll choose my words when I say mid-ranking jobs. Um, you know, at Newcastle, at Everton, it does feel as though his days of Champions League clubs are probably behind him. He was strongly linked with that West Ham job. There seemed to be a feeling that maybe he was putting himself out there once again. But you are at that stage of the season where maybe, what, there's nine teams in a relegation scrap. Maybe one or two of those teams might still panic between now and the end of the season and think, we need to do something different. Let's get an experienced head in. And Rafa's like, hey, you've called the right guy. He's also a Champions League winning manager who lives on Merseyside, who's living in England, who's around the place, who maybe just gets a little bit bored sometimes and thinks, you know what, I want to get out there and do fair a bit of work. Fair enough, yeah, fair enough. You can't, you can't go to Everton, though, and come back to Liverpool. That's, nah. Well, you can't. He couldn't, he couldn't go back to Liverpool anyway. Nah. Uh, the the ship had sailed. Yeah. But, uh, oh, absolutely. Um, and his, oh, the ship and his style of football has sailed. Yeah, and his, his uh, competitive advantage, which was knowing the Spanish market better than anybody else at that stage and having enough credibility to be able to land some big fish, that also has sailed a long time ago too. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Just because he was in the papers this morning. One other thing that's um, in the papers, and we're going to talk about the Republic of Ireland in a moment. But Lee Carsley is considering his position and may leave the uh, underage job that he has with England at the end of the Euros. And they're linking in the Times today, in the London Times, they're linking Stevie G, Frank Lampard, Ashley Cole with that role. And obviously, um, they will definitely speak to those about it, which might not be the worst thing for those managers to go and do something a bit off-Broadway with the young talent as a stepping stone to potentially getting the England gig. Could their egos take that? Could their egos take that? I'm going to I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say no. I mean, come on, those lads want to be front and centre. Championship job, back up to the Premier League. Stephen Gerrard's doing interviews for Liverpool TV. You know, he was sitting out with Mo Salah at the weekend. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe because it's Mo Salah and game-recognised game and he's about to break the record. Now he's keeping himself busy. He's back on BT Sport. Uh, I think if the FA came to any of 
those former internationals and said, look at this pathway that worked so successfully for Gareth Southgate. Look at your current CVs. We cannot give you the England job and Gareth Southgate leaves when, you know, what happened at Everton for you, Frank, and what happened to Villa for you, Stephen. But if you go and you work for the next two or three years at this under-21 job, it's a relatively no-pressure job. You win the vast majority of games because of the amount of talent you have, build yourself up, and suddenly you fit into our culture, you understand what we're all about, and it's easy for us to give you the gig. Uh, so I, I, I think ego is probably out the window when it comes to this, if there's a clear pathway to them getting the big gig. Lee Cartley being available in the summer might ratchet up pressure if things don't go well for Ireland at the start of their campaign. Possibly. Lee Carsley's obviously constantly been linked with roles around Irish football. There's, does Lee Carsley want to be a senior international manager and all the pressure that comes with that? We, we just don't know. Like When he's gone in before as manager of club sides, it generally hasn't lasted very long. And he seems to be someone who loves being on the training ground, who likes working with young players, who likes developing players. Does he want what is you know, an incredibly pressurised job, being the senior international job, as pressurised a job as there is in this country? Mm. I'm not quite sure if that's what Lee Carsley sees his future as, but absolutely, if he's gone from that England role and if there was to be a change of manager at some time over this year, I think he would definitely be front and centre. And I don't know what his wage demands are, but you would feel that Lee Carsley going from an England under-21 manager you know, would probably be within the FAI's reach, which would be quite a limited reach whenever Stephen Kenny does leave. So he'll certainly be in the mix. Like His coaching CV and his reputation around being able to develop young players is good. as good as it gets. <laughs> so you would you would love uh, if there was some sort of a role at some stage for Lee Carsley. But, you know, Lee Carsley has lived in England all his life. Is he fully aware of everything that's going on at the underage coaching structures in Ireland to take on that sort of job? It would be a massive step back from to leave England and an, for an underage role here. But maybe there's something in him that's always wanted that senior Ireland gig. And, you know, his CV at almost all levels of coaching is spot on. It's what? just that final bit of being the man in front of okay. the media. Is there another role in Irish football for, for Lee Carsley? Like a, a technical Well, most director. of those roles are currently filled. You know, they've made a lot of appointments over the last couple of years uh, in those behind-the-scenes roles to try and strengthen things and to try and become that bit more modern. But you would hope that if Lee Carsley is available and if he's stepping away from England, again, if he's stepping away, if he's leaving that role, he must feel that there's something else out there for him that can okay. satisfy him. Okay, let, let's move on because um, obviously uh, we'll, we'll come back to the Republic of Ireland situation in a couple of minutes' time. If anybody wants to get anything off their chest, as I said, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment in the YouTube stream or you can tweet us at Off the Ball AM. And we're live every morning with Gillette Labs. Got the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. We should start with Cheltenham. I don't know if you got the opportunity. You you're, were watching Cheltenham a yeah. little bit yesterday. Mm. Um, so Constitution Hill romps home and everybody's like well this is a wonder horse you need to pay attention to this and so the atmosphere is already pretty high because Constitution Hill was three to one on so that's unbackable and yet everybody backs him you know like loads of people are putting down a hundred quid to win 30 back (laughs) and so there's a lot of risk involved in that and so therefore when there's an emotional outpouring when a great horse like that absolutely dominates the field but what's coming next is the end of Honeysuckle you know, we've been told that this is the the last race of Honeysuckle's career, and um, I think I don't know if it was John or somebody else yesterday made the point that Honeysuckle was basically the breakout of Rachel Blackmore, the kind of the, where she went from being a, a cult hero amongst racing to being an absolute superstar. That and obviously then, you know, winning a Gold Cup and winning a um, 
uh, Grand National as well. But Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore are inextricably linked, particularly with the way that Honeysuckle would win at Leopardstown at Christmas, you know, just dominating around the bend and speeding up. Like, lay lay non-horse racing fans can go, that horse is running faster than everybody else (laughs) and absolutely crushing it. And um, and constantly again would be odds on in those races and would always deliver and has only been beaten twice and it's it's this season and so that's one part of it and we know that this is the end of honeysuckle and so th- there's already um, there's already a lot of love for it but then you layer in the absolute tragedy that the Bromhead family had suffered just this year and the pressure that Rachel Blackmore must have been under to deliver particularly I don't know if you if you watch the race like there's a bit where. She goes behind and you're thinking, this isn't going to happen. Mm. And there's a kind of a sharp intake of breath from the crowd going, oh, we're so close to, to having this happen. And then for it just to happen, like you never, you never get this in sport. Sport always lets you down <laughs> with the fairy tale ending. We always go, oh, you couldn't script this. No one would believe it if you scripted this. And then it's like, but she wins. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I don't know, I, was, I, I found it excessively emotional yeah. when the horse was winning and they were speaking to everybody afterwards and everybody was, was losing it everybody was losing it like in, in commentary Ruby couldn't get the words out but then in the midst of it all Henry de Bromhead is, is calm and almost at peace and, and celebrating in a way that they are, again they're remarking that you, you never see them but like I don't know I, I thought it was one of the all time great sporting moments yeah like you even saw the, his other little son with him as well which kind of added to the to the occasion and to the emotion it, when you put the emotion aside before the race a lot of the pundits are like well I don't think Honeysuckle's going to win here like I, I'd have to say and I felt like a traitor but I fancied Love Envoy and for most of the race Love Envoy was like yep yeah, pushing ahead was racing very well but then you saw Honeysuckle come and you're like this is this is going to be it this is going to happen but I don't know why we ever doubted Rachel Blackmore or why anyone who didn't maybe back Honeysuckle yesterday or, or fancier um and and a measure of of Rachel Blackmore's character was that she's straight away after the race being asked about about the race and and her thoughts straight away with Jack de Bromhead and with Henry and Heather and like that like literally the first thing she said I think it was and I, I like I, I think that's because that's what it that's what it was that's what the race was about mm. you know like uh, it, it while the end of Honeysuckle this Wonder Horse was an amazing racing story like and you could tell that it was. It was relief, not joy, that she was feeling at the end because, like, you know, I think one of the things that Tyrone did whenever they had their tragedies, they were like, look, you can't try and win this for Cormac McAnallan this year because you're not going to be able to carry the burden of that. Um, You know, you can't do that. And it's impossible for, for people to carry the burden of winning something on behalf of somebody else who isn't themselves. And it, it took them a while to get through that grief and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, you know, grief grief is different for everybody. But and it, it, we always talk about this on the show that we don't talk about it very well uh, as a country. We're great at the old uh, cursory stuff, but um, I, I've no doubt that she felt that she had to win that mm. for the family and and for everything that had happened this year. And so the pressure that you must put yourself under to get to that point, and then to be able to deliver, like. Again, like as you saw the photo of them up there on the screen at the start of the show, just four, like four wins at Cheltenham for Honeysuckle, and straight away Rachel Blackmore was like, "It'll be different without her here next year," and and it will be. I mean, 
you, you saw the the reception she was getting as she walked into the winner's enclosure and, and passed the grandstand and every, everyone to a, to a man and a woman was was feeling the emotion of the occasion you could see it even A.P. McCoy had saw people pointing out was getting emotional uh, on this punditry as well and you just felt the lump in the throat watching it it was one of those um, TV moments for anyone who wasn't there uh, that, that you'll always remember because I think even if you're not a, a horse racing fan a lot of people in this country are Rachel Blackmore fans um, or Honeysuckle fans possibly so just one of those moments I think we'll, we'll never forget it, I think it will be the highlight of the Cheltenham Festival Johnny Ward was pointing out on Instagram yesterday he thought it was the best day of the festival ever, and I think a lot of people maybe echoed those sentiments yesterday. So it was just, it was just incredible. For like from from I the think Supreme. it showed what a what a tight knit community the racing community is, the love and the support that was there for the De Bromhead fam- family, and that the admiration you have to have for Henry De Bromhead and his family, and this very public grief that they're going through. That Henry De Bromhead was back in the racetrack very very quickly after his son's passing, and every time there's a winner. The obvious question to ask is, was this one for Jack? And Henry has to answer them and he talks so poignantly and he talks so brilliantly. And I'm sure, as you say, when you give that Tyrone comparison, he wasn't telling Rachel Blackmore, you know, go out and do this for this reason because she she simply couldn't. But for her to be able to somehow use that emotion in such a positive way. And I think it was one of the all-time great Cheltenham moments, the the celebrations afterwards, as tinged as it were at sadness. I think everybody was at Cheltenham and as good a day as everyone was having, they realised that this was something different, that this meant a little bit more than than just a race, that for, for Irish racing, for the De Bromhead family, that, that this was right, that this is what should happen. And for Rachel Blackmore, for Honeysuckle on the sporting side, it's a real shame because racing needs more Honeysuckles. There's probably not enough horses out there at the moment that have that level of name recognition that people go, all right, Honeysuckle's racing today. I'm going to go and watch this. Now, maybe the uh, one of the replacements came just beforehand in Constitution Hill that's with a performance of that magnitude. Now, that's a horse that we're watching every time it arrives on the golf course, on the, on the golf course, <laughs> on the race course. Uh, but... Yeah, it was. It was a remarkable hour of TV, and I can only imagine for those people that were there in the midst of it, it's, it is going to go down as one of the great days of racing. Before yesterday, uh, Shay was making the point on air that he'd forgotten that there was Champions League action last night. I think the whole world basically had, uh, particularly in the aftermath of that, certainly in this part of the world. And then um, Erling Haller reminded everybody, oh, this, is why, this is why we signed you. We were having this conversation yesterday on the back of Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank about who the player of the year was. And I was trying tentatively to make the case, ah, Erling Haller's done what you'd expect him to do. And I've changed my mind. New evidence, new information came to light. New information. He has done. He has done what you expected him to do. But maybe in its own way, that's what's quite remarkable about Erling Haaland. We all thought he was going to score 30, 40, 50, 60 goals this season. But to actually go and do it, like nobody has done what he has ever has done this before for a Premier League side. So the the way he he was on it last night, like Manchester City were on it right from the start. This is the best we have seen of City in three or four months. De Bruyne, who's been just dogged by inconsistency ever since the World Cup, having had a poor World Cup right from day one. Maybe all these interviews he was doing during the week about being an old man, maybe Pep Guardiola having a little bit of a pop at him, telling him he needs to start going back to basics, all that. All the anger came out last night, but like there were some controversial moments in the first half and some absolutely disgraceful refereeing. Yeah. But Manchester City were 
they were they were back. Uh, now, whether they can get that consistency to be back for the next three months and go and win everything, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, Hallett, it was like a magnet. It was bizarre, wasn't it? That well, every time before the shot we get, was hang on, taken, you, you, the keeper would just push it back into his path. Well, that that would it would be helpful if you would like keep the ball away from the big lad who's like the best striker, most prolific goal scorer in the world at the moment. That would help. But I do I like before they were gifted the opening goal, they were missing chances. On a big European night, where everything is like up for grabs, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if they hadn't been gifted that, and maybe if their keeper had been punished properly. For I'm just saying, I'm not saying that they were going to lose a game they ultimately won at a canter and had wrapped up by half time essentially. But like, I still think there's a flakiness in this Man City team where they needed that penalty to settle the nerves because chance pinball, oh great shot, reasonable save. Chance pinball wide. It's like okay, yeah, but they, they then beat a good Leipzig team seven 0 you know? And Leipzig have been, have been playing quite well. Yeah, let's let's give them the penalty and let's not send the keeper off. Oh, it definitely wasn't a pen- definitely wasn't a penalty. Crumbled. And the keeper had one of the worst performances you'll see at that level. In that he just he, maybe it was the power of the shots and he couldn't hold any of them, but everything just seemed to bounce back to a Manchester City player. You're right. It was. It did feel when the penalty was given, it was inevitable that City were going to score, but you could argue in previous seasons it was inevitable lots of things were going to happen for Manchester City in the Champions League and it didn't happen. Uh, the, the decision to give the penalty was an absolute joke. The decision to book Timo Werner for moaning after Ederson comes out. Now, is it a red card? They'll obviously say it was players back, but the goalkeeper's not in his goal. No. Uh, mm-hmm. If he doesn't get there, and these are very talented players. There's an absolute risk that Leipzig go and score. And while Pep Guardiola will take a lot of satisfaction with the 7 0, with Erling Haaland's performance, I think in particular with Kevin De Bruyne's performance, there was still that five minute spell where he went, Oh, yeah. these are the five minute spells that have killed Manchester City yeah. throughout Pep Guardiola's time. Where, And while. A lot of it was of their own undoing. Again, Rodri with a sloppy back pass, Ederson rushing out of goals, just complete and utter panic for no reason for five minutes where you thought, well, if Leipzig got a couple of goals here, suddenly all those things come back to haunt Manchester City. Now, that's what they're going to have to deal with and live with throughout this entire campaign, that lack of trust that people probably have in them from the outside. It's whether they also have that lack of trust in themselves because this is... The Pep Guardiola way, it's often spoken about, you know, he doesn't like leaders on the pitch. He doesn't look for people to take control of situations. He is the man who decides absolutely everything. And that's why it ends up costing them. That's why they concede two, three goals in the space of 10 minutes in these matches, because there's nobody on the pitch who can just say, calm down, calm down and let's control this. And it did feel in that five minute spell again, as though they just lost their heads. They're so boring to watch at times. And, and Phil in the office this morning said it's, it is like a PlayStation game at times for, for Erling Haaland. Like I've heard him described as agricultural, and it definitely makes sense when you look at Erling Haaland. He plays like a well, he, he turns every league into a farmers league for a start, and he's t- turned the Champions League into the farmers league. Um, with, you know, taking the piss. He's, it's like he was lambing yos last night. Let's just see. had the big long glove on, and he was plucking goals yeah. out of that Leipzig net. He's just City were boring last night. There's games where City are boring, and they play within themselves, and they save their energy, and they don't take any risks. And I always think. It depends on De Bruyne. If he feels like he's playing well, yeah. City are on it. And he was as good as I've seen from him in, in a long, long time. You do have to remind yourself that De Bruyne is 31. He'll be 32 by the end of uh, the summer, by the time we go into next season. Like We are in the autumn of Kevin De Bruyne's career. And how they find someone to replace him is going to be very difficult. But like they just bombarded the Leipzig penalty area with crosses. But it was the quality of his crosses from minute one 
that set the tone for that game. And I, Can yeah, I, sorry, I, just I to, to interrupt, I, I think the main thing is that he picked his normal team, his best team, didn't get in his own head. I think that's interesting. I, I think that there was no, oh, we're going to be so clever here. It was like, okay, I'm going to pick the trio in midfield that I expect, and I'm going to pick my three forwards. Foden to come in to replace Silva or Grealish is a possibility at some point, but you're not thinking... Oh, he's completely changed the structure of the team here. He's gone with, uh, oh, I don't know, what, whatever weird selection it is. It's like, no, we're going to go out and win Still this game. Still plenty of time. Still plenty of time. There is, there is, there is. I'm, Leipzig, I'm, I'm not, um, ask the Etihad. I would uh, give him time. Yeah, like there, there's a there's a depth there in the three or four players, the first three or four players on the bench mm. that means you're never quite sure of the selection. I still always feel they're at their best if Mares is on the pitch, but maybe if Mares is there, you can't have De Bruyne in an advanced position that takes too much away from his game. But like this, one of the stories of City season is that Phil Foden, Phil Foden played every big game in recent years. Even when he was rested at times, if there was a big match in the Premier League or Champions League, Foden would generally come back in. But right now, Grealish is ahead of him. So it'll be interesting to Grealish see how that really develops. Well. He some... is, he deserves to be ahead of him from yeah. what we've seen from Grealish. Can he find a spot for the two of them together? Doesn't look likely, but again, what options to have off the bench? Pep was in some form in his post-match press conference last night. Like He was like, I, I, I have more info than the Twitter guys. I was right when he's talking about his team. And Julie Roberts, I don't know if you saw this, Nathan. Like Julie Roberts comes up, but Pep brings, brings her up. He's talking about uh, 2016, so this is a quote from Pep last night, right? November 2016, so Julie Roberts has the same agent as Jose Mourinho, apparently. Her kids love football. November 2016, Julie Roberts goes to Old Trafford to watch United play West Ham. CAA, the, the, it's a giant agency. Massive agency, of course. Yeah, there's a link there. Yeah. There's a link. Well, tentative as, as it might be. Uh, pictured on the pitch afterwards. Uh, George Mendes is not, um, or whoever was uh, the, <laughs> who was the guy, the Portuguese super agent that got Jose all the Mendes, Jose before that, wasn't there one? Oh, yeah, there was one previous. Anyway, go on. Um, but yeah, Pep, Pep brings uh, Julie Roberts up last night. He says, I have three idols in my life. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. Julie Roberts. Julie Roberts years ago came to Manchester, not in the period of Alex Ferguson when they were winning titles after title. Uh, in the last four or five years when we were better than them. But she didn't come to see us. She went to visit Man United. Even if I win the Champions League, it will not ease the disappointment of Julie Roberts going to United. My idol. Even if I win the Champions League three times in a row, he went on to say. <laughs> Can I just, I just want to, ap- apropos of nothing, this is the plot to a movie. William Thacker is a London bookstore owner whose humdrum existence is thrown into romantic turmoil when famous American actress Anna Scott appears in his shop. A chance encounter over spilled orange juice leads to a kiss that blossoms into a full-blown affair. As the average bloke and glamorous movie star draw closer and closer together, they struggle to reconcile their radically different lifestyles in the name of love. Do you think Pep Guardiola, his, his daydream is not like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I could pair Messi and Haaland. It's not. It's like, I wonder what would happen if... Julia Roberts accidentally spilled some orange juice on me. I think we got an insight into... He wants to be Hugh Grant in Notting Hill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what he's thinking about. The rest of the world is like, oh, Pep, you've got it. But he sees himself as like a humdrum bookstore. That's in his mind's eye. He's got a full head of hair and he's got a a busy bookish shop. Maybe it's the power of Charlie Wilson's war, her character in that. Or maybe it's um, Aaron Brockovich. We don't know what, what film exactly... You know, Pep is, is no, a massive no, no. fan it, of. It, it, we 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 know exactly. He's he's in England, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I could be. This is sleeping with the enemy. I mean, I don't think so. There's so many to choose from, but I, I would say, yeah, possibly not. With the enemy is like serious domestic abuse. Yeah, line. of course. I, that's um, um, yeah, probably is Nottingham, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, As Pep, the inside of Pep's mind, 
He's Hugh Grant. He sees himself as sort of George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven. Oh, Ocean's Twelve, isn't it? Or is it both? Yeah, yeah. Both. Fair point. Fair point. Um, <laughs> can I? What, what an actress! Story. Story. Yeah. Martin Brownie's a good piece today. Uh, Ireland's grandstand bid should be in Croke Park. What do we think of this? Bring in more money. Why they play at the Aviva? Well, because you fit thirty thousand or more get people. In. Yeah. No, the Aviva's our home stadium. It's not about just play where you play all the time. No. Don't be putting Ireland at a disadvantage. It would be no, to have more Irish fans in Croke Park. No. To be playing to play in a England. venue where they're not used to playing. Yeah, sure, that's just way. get used to playing it. Go and take, get your, let your kickers have a kick. We should play our big games in Croke Park. We should play our small games in the Aviva. We should make the Aviva suitable for Gaelic football so the Dubs can play their Leinster Championship games there. We should use the available resources properly. I'm in full agreement with this. I can't, I can't believe you think it's a bad idea. Every rugby game is a big game. It's not. We play Italy. It's but not it, a big game. We play. We so play. We play, we play so with we Scotland play. and Wales. Those years. I mean, if Wales are any good, or but Scotland are any good. They sell eighty thousand tickets for Scotland and Wales. I don't think they would. Maybe yes, they, they would. would. I don't. Th- I don't think they would. But uh, well, if that's the case, then play them and let Leinster play in their games in the Aviva and let Munster play some games in the Aviva. And um, I think we should just be open to using our resources properly. Even I think it's games, fine so. to have several stadiums and to use them for the different sports. Just because a game is sold out, you know, bracket atmosphere, intense atmosphere, it doesn't mean you need to move it to a bigger venue. Uh, no, it doesn't. Don't play their Leicester Championship game in the Aviva. It doesn't in... in well, why not? They can't fill <laughs> You're Park. disgusted, Nathan. Well, they won't be able to fill the Aviva either. Well, I mean... It'll be a novelty factor for the first one. They'd have a better chance. Once, once uh, I don't know, Westmead gets Although good. the ball would end up going over that little stand. Yeah, it's true. This isn't in the rugby, so... No, I think they I have nets, Nathan. They have they have big nets behind the goal. You gotta you gotta control the controllables, don't you? You gotta have all your home games at the same pitch. I'd say like you only have what max three home games in the Six Nations. So right, I think we've is ridiculous. Uh, Liverpool and their prospects of a comeback tonight. Zero 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 zero. I mean, one percent is what Jurgen Klopp said. Rafa is like, ah, oh, once they score early, the comeback is on. I'm like, shut up, Rafa, shut up. Yeah, well, that's the tried and tested method of this when you need three goals that if you get one early, you can kind of get the second at any stage and then you set yourself up for a grandstand finale and hope that you scrap one in somehow in injury time and you get it to extra time. The problem here for Liverpool isn't scoring the three goals. The problem is how they keep Real Madrid out without conceding. Uh, when defensively again against Bournemouth at the weekend, they were all over the place and mm-hmm. we saw what Real Madrid did to them at Anfield. So like maybe Liverpool go out all guns blazing and get themselves a few goals but I don't think the Liverpool say to beat Barcelona who could do that who could go and attack 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 but still be solid defensively now if Liverpool are are pushing all those men forward without Henderson uh, who again I think is a massive loss I can't see Liverpool not conceding if they have to push so many men forwards but look they've done it before We've seen in the Champions League insane things tend to happen every single season, but I don't think you can sit here 12 hours away from kickoff and make a pretty solid case for Liverpool no. coming back into this. We have a, a, about a minute left. The Republic of Ireland squad is going to be named in the next 24 hours, I think, roughly, for the uh, double, double header against Latvia and France. It looks like Shane Duffy probably not going to be in the squad. Are there any other big surprises? No, it'll be interesting, I think, in terms of what new players he brings in. Like Duffy is obviously in a bit of trouble. He hasn't been making the full bench at the times over the past few weeks. Has started one game since August, lost his place on the Ireland team in the autumn. And like Kenny was very loyal to Duffy when Duffy struggled at Celtic, but when Stephen Kenny was talking last week, he admitted he had a lot to consider. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see him excluded, though maybe 
his ability to nick a goal in injury time off his arse gets him in and he thinks I can throw him on against France if we're desperately stuck. But he has other options now. Andrew Oma Bowdale is back fit. Up a couple of weeks ago, he was playing week in, week out in the Norwich team. Hasn't been in the squad in a while, but you'd expect he'd be back in. Daryl Lenehan was playing last night again every week for a really good Middlesbrough side. Has already started under Stephen Kenny against Ukraine last year. And then you've the likes of Jimmy Dunn, Mark McGuinness, who are playing every week in the championship. So... Duffy, while he's not playing, might find himself on the outside. Uh, the one who you'd expect to definitely come in is Mikey Johnson. Uh, the buzz around this from the FAI, like if Kylian Mbappe decided to take up Irish citizenship, I'm not sure the FAI would have been as excited as they were about Mikey Johnson. It has been daily updates press about his eligibility. Constant press releases about getting his passport, being available which suggests he'll certainly be in the squad. He is a name that will be very familiar to Celtic fans, made a Celtic debut at 18, hampered by injuries over the last couple of years. Chatting to some people who've been working with him this week, and like they were saying, this is a, a real talent. Like, okay. Technically excellent, sharp, could beat players, could be a big asset for Ireland if he can get himself fully fit because he's struggled massively. He's on loan in Portugal at the moment. Okay. He's getting plenty of minutes. So I think he'll be in the squad. All right. I think Will Smallbone, Mark Sykes, Sammy Smodzik will all be in the squad, but I think... For them to break into the 11 against France, probably pushing it. All right, we'll leave it there. Nathan, good stuff. Thanks a million. It's uh, 8 Cheers. o'clock this morning. OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night edition available now. After this short break, we're going to talk with Keith Wood and Matt Dawson, ahead of Ireland, England. First, here's Brian O'Driscoll chatting with Joe last night about Ireland's centres. Presumably Henshaw is at 13 and that allays any fears of a repeat of Rome. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know with Robbie, he's, a, he's accustomed in the thirteen jersey, and and he's one of those guys that you'd have no fear that had um, has had a, a long layoff from a fitness point of view. I remember seeing him previously having had a long layoff, and his first game back with Leinster, he was close to you know player of the match. Oh yeah, that was against he, the Ospreys in the in the Heineken Cup. Yeah, yeah. He, he was outstanding, and and I think. He's he's just one of those guys. You wouldn't say that of everyone, but he's one of those guys that you wouldn't be any way fearful uh, coming in. He's, his engine is one of his great traits, and so um, and not to say there won't be the odd bit of rustiness here and there, but his his footballing understanding, particularly defensively, is very very strong. I wouldn't anticipate that he'll try and make as many reads as Gary has done in this Six Nations, but he'll. Um, but he'll he'll have a very clear picture as to what way he wants to defend with Bundy, and obviously that partnership from his Connacht days is is all important. So yeah, I don't think you do lose something on on the confidence of what Gary's doing and and how he's defending on behalf of the team. But I think yeah, as a player, um, Robbie is you know is you should be careful not to be the forgotten man. He's he's been an outstanding performer mm. for for Ireland over the course of the last three or four seasons. And for me, absolute automatic selection when when fully fit. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, to help preview Ireland and England, we're bringing the heat this morning. Uh, one's a former World Player of the Year, Ireland captain, one's a World Cup winner, and they were Lions teammates. I'm delighted to welcome Keith Wood and Matt Dawson to the show. Matt, uh, we're feeling a little bit confident ahead of this game. How are you feeling at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm feeling really confident. Really confident. <laughs> be a, it's going to be a great weekend in Ireland. They're going to win the Grand Slam. Right. I'm pretty confident of that. Are you, are you over to play the Legends match beforehand? <laughs> uh, absolutely not. No, I, I'm uh, I'm coming over Thursday. Um, I've got a bit of work to do with Five Live, but 
I'm, uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm going to soak up every single minute of those three days because it's, yeah, for all the reasons that I'm sure that uh, you've been speaking about over the last few days, it's going to be a very, very special weekend. Um, and one that you, you know, if you're a rugby fan, you, you want to be a part of. You're one of the few people in the world who know what it's actually like to win a Grand Slam in Ireland because it's never happened in our history before. But you, you guys managed it. Uh, yeah, do you know what? I uh, I put a call in to Steve Forthwick on Monday and just said, listen, just give yourself half a chance. And uh, when you walk out, go and stand on the wrong side, stand on the Irish side, because uh, that really upsets them. Uh, and you've got half a chance. I, I, I think it's... Uh, listen, England, of course, are going to come out and they're going to be hurting from what happened against France. Uh, but... Yeah, to be perfectly honest, you can be hurting all you like. England don't really have the game plan to play against Ireland. Uh, I think Ireland will not be anywhere near complacent. I think they will be focused. They will be charged. They will be motivated to do something that that no one in a green shirt has ever done before. And they they just seem so cool and calm and collected at the moment. Um, and if I may say, I, I feel I feel like they're in a little bit of a zone that we were back 20 years ago where it didn't matter what people threw at you. We were just ready to take it on and we actually embraced the adversity. And Ireland looked like that at the moment. They look like they, they're ready and, uh, you know, and good on them. Yeah, Keith, I think that um, that's a, an excellent point and it's the one that uh, Andy Farrell has been talking about the whole way through about looking forward to challenges and this stretches all the way back to uh, the week after they got beaten by New Zealand um, that sense of, oh, this is a big challenge for us that, that's what we're in the game for and you know we were all sceptical about it at the start but now I think everybody believes that because the, the evidence is, is on the field of play for a game like this there's, there's talk in the papers about complacency but I guess to Matt's point this isn't about complacency for the Ireland team at all their motivation is to go and make history and that's that's the thing that's exciting them it seems like I, I think the fact that it's in the papers about complacency is that there's an awful lot of pundits and reporters who have only ever dealt with that level of complacency in the past and things have gone well you know and I, I for me the the joy of watching the team kind of play and grow at the moment is there seems to be an unbelievable level of honesty coming from Andy Farrell. So where he's saying, yeah, he's appreciating the difficulties and the reaction that the team have to go through. Um, and he's not castigating players for trying different things. He's still trying to get them to push their standard all the time to go for the pass if the pass is on and then to make the pass. But when those passes don't go to hand or when a tackle is missed, I don't know that he's coming down on them like a ton of bricks. I think he's saying, yeah, we want you to try it. We want you to believe. And they're giving them the scope to have small minor failures in the midst of a game, you know. So if you looked at the our defensive setup for this Six Nations, we've missed more tackles than we ever have. But we're playing the most exciting style of rugby and we're winning, you know. So I, I don't think that there's complacency within the within the team at all. I think there's an expectation that they go out and start fast and play well all the way to 80. They look very fit. They look very strong. Um, my only, it's not a worry, um, but 
the disruption of losing a chunk of players last week, which worked fantastic on the day. We now have a full week where we're trying to integrate other players in. But for me, the system is strong enough to take it. But I don't think it'll be quite as much of a walkover as some of the people who are half confused with the idea of complacency and then the fact that this is an international match that they'll win by 30 points easily. You know, there's a, there's a quite interesting confusion in some of the, some of the commentary. Yeah, Matt, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk to you about. One is the, the imprints of Stuart Lancaster and, and obviously the fact that Andy Farrell is, is uh, an Englishman and we have Mike Catt involved as well. Um, is there any sense in English rugby that somehow this is a, 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 a brains trust that got away? Do you know what? There, there, hasn't, there hasn't been that narrative, actually, in English rugby um, around that yet. I'm sure that... Uh, that when Ireland come up with the goods at the weekend, that then that will be mentioned. Um, but that, no, no, I, 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 it's not really been a story. Plenty of English coaches or English ex-players and coaches have gone to um, to international rugby. I think the, I, I think if anything, it's it's more of a story for those coaches rather than the public. I think that there was a. Um, you know, Lancaster, Barrel, Cat, particularly, you know, he was a colleague of, of uh, Keith and ours from the Lions uh, tours. You know, he has got such an unbelievable brain in the game, but has never been able to really lay it out there in an environment that Keith was talking about there in, in an environment where the consequence when the consequences weren't necessarily managed to an inch of their lives. And I, I, I think now that it doesn't actually matter where the coaches come from. I mean, listen, Ireland have had New Zealand coaches, Ireland coaches, English coaches previously. Um, I think it's the mindset is so connected between what the players want to do when they go on the field and the types of coaches that they are. They're, they're players, coaches, not management coaches. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, they're, they're probably. Yeah, given what could happen at the weekend, I think that narrative might well take over. So you potentially have sparked up yet another reason for uh, the English media to jump on their backs and maybe the RFU should have kept the likes of Andy Farrell and Mike Cat and Stuart Lancaster. But um, uh, yeah, they're, listen, they're doing a great job. I'm, I'm very, very proud of, uh, of uh, to see what they can do because it sets the benchmark. You know, and England need to find a benchmark pretty quick. Uh, Matt, we were talking about this yesterday. Jack Van Portfleet came up at, at Scrum Half and Matt Williams was making the point that he didn't feel like he was up to, to international standards just just yet. I know you were writing about this this week uh, with your, with your column on BBC Sport. Like, it, it, How many of this English team, if any, are, are world-class at the moment? Because it, it feels like the first time in a generation where maybe, maybe they're struggling for any in that in that bracket. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, certainly there are no players in that team that are world class at the moment. Um, there, there are a handful of players in that squad that have been world class and have the capabilities of being world class, but they're absolutely not there at the moment. I think there's a misconception that you can generalise really good play by saying you're world class. Well, world class effectively means if there's a world 15, you're in it. And there is not a chance there is anyone from that England side. Uh, being in a world 15, you, to, to answer your question on Jack Van Portfleet, you know, there, there, there's a good, there's a good case study where, you know, I watch a lot of premiership rugby and I've never seen Jack Van Portfleet play like that. 
say that he has he has been you know, his game has been somewhat drawn out of him because of the way that England want the style to be. Um, and you know, not that I have spoken to him, but you know, if I if I did, I would say, listen, mate, go back to how you play at Leicester. Give pace in the game, be a threat around the fringes. You know, put pressure on your fellow players to play in an intensity and a decision-making intensity that the opposition are going to struggle at. Everybody in the world can deal with, you know, one phase and a box kick. And you know, are you going to do that to Hugo Keenan? Absolutely no chance. You're going to get ripped apart. Um, so it's just a matter of those England players gaining a bit more confidence about how they play week to week and coming up with a with a strategy, which is going to take time. You know, that's not going to happen in a week. Want to go to Dublin? No chance. Keith, from an Ireland perspective, obviously we, we lost both our hookers. Uh, early in the game and then Keen Healy comes on and plays can you talk to us a little bit about your admiration for what Healy managed to do and then presume it's Herring back this week so first off Healy what did you make of that? Um, look there's a, there's a variety of pieces on that for one um, A Healy's an incredible professional B the fact that they, they had him marked down as a hooker shows a fine sense of forethought because you have to be marked as one to be able to be safe for insurance reasons actually that you have to be able to play in that position and the fact that he'd be able to do it now I would have played against three prop front rows back in the day that was a big Argentinian thing it was a French thing for for quite a while in the early 90s um, so it can be done but and the game has changed a little so that the striking isn't quite as uh, far-reaching as it used to be. You, you know, the ball goes in uh, a little bit more crooked than it used in our day. But to raise your foot at all for a prop under pressure in the middle of a scrum is terrifying. So, you know, that is, it's an extraordinary thing to do. I mean, we have to do it every now and then. We put the backs into, into the front row just to show how hard it was <laughs> that we had to work for them not to knock on the ball in the back in the back line, but just for pressure without pushing. The pressure that goes down on the neck when when you're going to strike the ball is is terrifying if you're not used to it. And it takes a while to get used to. It took him one scrum. So for that it's pretty extraordinary. I just I loved the thinking that went on, the the prep that was done so that a player can go into the scrum and feel confident. Of course, when it went down to the opposition ball, he was just it's like he's a huge beast of a man. So he's in a great position to push straight and push hard and put the team under pressure. So I thought our scrum actually got stronger when he went in. And that's a very unusual thing. Um, I did send him a message afterwards and welcomed him to the club. <laughs> but it's... Um, it's a funny, uh, like, I, again, it's just a rare thing that you see. And for me, it opens up a whole variety of unusual questions that I would never have liked to have opened up when I was playing. Do you have to have the hooker throwing the ball into the lineout? Because um, uh, Van der Fleer threw incredibly well. And um, can you have different players playing in different positions? It's, you know, that have different sizes or skill sets. But on this one day, the results were phenomenal because if it went to uncontested scrums, that takes a lot of pressure off a team that's trying to chase a game, and and that never happened. What about Herring? Is there, do we lose much if Herring starts next weekend? No, I'm a fan of Herring. Um, I'm not a fan of him as, by comparison to to Sheehan or Kelleher. I think Sheehan is is world class. Actually, um, I think he has 
he has the touches to be one of the absolute greats in the game. Um, I don't know what the story is with his injury. Um, I think Kelleher seems to be out definitely. Herring is not as powerful, but is accurate. Um, in the line out is, is a, is a, he's a really good international player. I mean, we're, we're well served and we hadn't been for, for a period of time. We only ever had one or two, maybe one injury away from almost panic stations, but now we have. Herring, I think, and and if Sheehan isn't there, maybe maybe Stewart's two guys from Ulster coming into it, so that might happen. So, no, I wouldn't worry about that at all. I, I if we were talking about the team, and it'd be interesting whether Matt has a view on this, but for me, the biggest change looking at Ireland this year is that there is a structure that people can fit into that doesn't depend on you being um, taking on a mantle of of a playmaker or um, a mantle of where you have to be at 100% straight away. There's about four or five different options nearly for every pass at the moment. I haven't seen that for a while. So so when players are training in that system for six or seven weeks and they drop into it, yeah, you can you can change players. So I thought Ross Byrne came off, came onto the field the other day and looked at his most comfortable in an unbelievably difficult match. Yeah, Matt, was that one of the hallmarks of your team when you were at the level that was competing and winning a World Cup? Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, but I, I certainly do see a a lot of similarities um, that that or, or, or a lot of um, uh, the, the sort of methodology of Ireland at the moment and their strategy from. When I was, you know, all those years ago, it, 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 it sort of feels to me that when I watch Ireland, they're like, um, they, they sort of have this military precision in the way that they play. And as Keith alluded to there, just that everybody can slot into every single position and they know exactly where they are. And, you know, all the uniforms are beautifully positioned and and boots polished and you know it looks so neat and everybody is moving in 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 unison with one another um and it's just it, it feels that it feels to me that they go on the field with no no arrogance but an absolute confidence that if they just do what they're supposed to do they're going to get themselves into positions of score. And that probably then leads towards what Keith's talking about is those individual playmakers that maybe Ireland have had in the past that stand out, you know, Keith being one of them, Brian O'Driscoll being another, you know, Johnny Sexton in his early, early years. Whereas now they are all at such an incredible level and they all sit in this brilliant regime, which gives them a flexibility to do what they need to do, but also what they they want to do. Um, but it, it really does have a it has a feel of uh, it, and that, usually this sounds really negative. It's sort of mechanical, robotic, but it's as if they've found the the new human robot that can do a break dance and uh, as well as sit down and have dinner and do all the mannerisms you possibly want. It's so well oiled. I can't. I genuinely can't see anyone other than. France on a you know a crazy day in Paris, you're pushing them at the moment. It's going to be difficult to keep that over the next six months, of course. But right now they are they're the real deal for sure. Two quick questions about England before we let you go, Matt. The, um, 
the Tuolagi is a ghost for Ireland because every time he's played us, he has beaten us. He's literally, it was, you know, it was his physicality that caused the injury that ended David Wallace's career. They smashed us when, uh, four years ago when we thought, oh, we're going to roll into the Six Nations and head off to Japan and be really happy. And he just came on, on, the, on the first throw in at a line out, smashed our midfield. There was a knock on. The game was over at Lansdowne Road and it's like, oh my God, he's back. He's back this weekend. One player can't entirely change anything but suddenly there's something for England to hang their hat on well I mean we, if, if Mano is fit then he would probably play because England do need uh, they do need momentum they do need something that is going to change the picture uh, for the referee for the opposition for them to be concerned about um, so uh, you know I, I would expect Mano to maybe come in and and cause a little bit of damage early on. But um, I, I'm not sure that's enough against the island side. I think, we, you know, you, you've given a couple of examples there where you know, in years gone by, that may have sort of ruffled the feathers and have discombobulated the island team to a point where, the, but I just can't see that happening. I, I mean, I'd love, love it to happen. Don't get me wrong. I mean, bringing Manu back and, giving England that kickstart and you know, gathering all of that energy and passion that England need to have when they play away from home. Um, but from what I've seen from Ireland at the moment, they'll probably soak it up and take all that energy out of England and move somewhere else. And the other one was about Billy Vinopola. Do you think he would improve the team if he was in the squad at the moment? Um, well, uh, the number eight discussion um, is, is, uh, is, a, is a long one. I've been away for a couple of days and that keeps on cropping up with everybody who wants to talk to me about English rugby. And, uh, Alex John Brad did not have a good day at the office. Um, he has maybe he's got plenty of things to prove if he wants to say that he's the number eight for England at that type of intensity. Um, who, who on earth do England then pick? Do they pick Sam Simmons? Do they put Ludlam at eight? Do you bring back Billy Vinopola, who from all accounts has had a bit of a falling out with Steve Borthwick? Is Steve Borthwick going to put that aside just for one game? I'm not too sure. There is not, a, you know, there is not a depth of number eights coming through that are of the quality of Ireland, France, um, New Zealand, South Africa that... You know, and as Keith, Keith knows just as much as I do, your, your number eight is a real barometer, like the hooker, like the number eight, like your fullback. It's a real barometer of how you play and the intensity that you play. And yeah, I mean, as you identified, that is one position that needs something. So yeah, maybe, maybe Billy is, is the man. He's not played international rugby for a while, but it's all it's all hands on deck it's, it's whatever you can possibly do to to get yourself through 80 minutes and and try and scrape a win or try and scrape a performance even, even that hurts by saying it but if England perform well at the weekend it might it might that might be enough I mean that's ridiculous for me to say that even if England don't win but they perform that might be enough for this team that hurts but it might well be the case yeah, Keith, listening to that, Ireland should win this game. What's your prediction? Yeah, look, I, I just want to touch on one bit from, from Matt. I think 
England have been fairly destabilised by having players picked and dropped with huge regularity over the last number of years. There hasn't been that consistency of selection. And at times we've criticised Andy Farrell that he hasn't made enough changes. But he has built the system that now the changes can fit in without it being destabilising. And that's been the difference. So so for me, when I look at, at this game, then at the weekend... Um, I lo- I've loved the last two performances. They've been very different, but I've loved them for what they were. There was a 12-minute period in the second half the other day, the start of the second half. It was the slowest 12 minutes I can remember ever watching, whether that was just anticipation or or what was going on in the field. But it was an amazingly intense game of rugby and a great game of rugby. We picked up a lot of injuries from it, but I thought the manner in which we won led to this weekend. So... Um, like a, a lot comes down, still comes down to additional injuries, still comes down to yellow cards and red cards. And I think our discipline has been very, very good. And that's one thing that kind of takes a little bit of the energy um, or gives us a little bit more energy that our discipline has been very good with it. I think it will be a really, really tough. England can't change how they're playing. They're going to kick an awful lot of ball. They're going to try and carry the ball a lot heavier and harder and try and poke holes in it because to change into a wider expansive game at the moment with a team with a very low confidence level doesn't seem likely. So they're going to try and do their their game plan but do it better than they have at a higher intensity. That will cause damage at different times but I do think Ireland will be able to withhold it. So uh, I think I think we win. I think we win by sort of 10, 12 points, not 20 points, 30 points, 40 points, the way people are presuming will, will automatically happen. This is the last game of the Six Nations. This is a huge game for us. Um, I hope we play with the same level of ambition. And our ambition is to score tries as often as we possibly can. But I expect England to have their best performance of the year um, because I think that they have the pride will be to do it. I think it was a chastening experience for them last weekend. Final word to you, Matt. What's your prediction? I, I, I would take uh, I would take 10, 12 points all day long. Um, I think that, that would be a good performance for, for England to get within 10 of Ireland right now. Um, it, it will all be down to the last probably 20, 25 minutes. If if Ireland are in good control of the game and the scoreboard, then yeah, as we saw at the weekend, have England got the fitness, have England got the, the mindset to hang on and really dig in for 25 minutes. Um, you know, and, and the way that Ireland are so clinical, it could it could be, you know, more towards 20 points win. But I do lean more towards what Keith's saying there. I think just the occasion is going to be so intense for both sides. Um, it's more than likely going to be tight, uh, but I'll say Ireland by 15. Gents, great to have you with us. Former Lions teammates Keith Wood and Matt Dawson, thanks a million for joining us today, folks. Cheers, gents. Pleasure. It's uh, 26 minutes past eight. Um, I think the England team is going to be really interesting because uh, I think they're going to pick potentially... Ford is getting a lot of talk in the papers today mm-hmm. again I don't know if that's uh, people on a flyer but you wouldn't be terribly surprised they pick Ford at 10 Farrell at 12 Tuolagi at 13 yeah. and suddenly it's a much beefed up England team which is completely different from the team that played uh, the team of kids who yeah. played against France at the weekend and that defence will be much more 
aggressive and physical and uh, all of a sudden you can see that being again where they kick the leather off the ball mm. try and put some pressure on Herring's throws attack our line out early and see what happens because uh, they don't ha- they don't have anything else at the moment well, that's the so early in their evolution like England have to pinpoint Irish weaknesses but the problem is where where are the Irish weaknesses I mean like to hear to hear Matt saying there that they ex- or was it Keith saying that they expect the biggest English performance of the year and yet we're talking about a spread in the bookies of 16 points I think it is like that is quite remarkable to, to, to be sitting here on, the, on, on a Grand Slam decider this weekend and people saying Ireland could win by 20 points that's that is ridiculous. Yeah, I think that we might end up winning this with a skit three drop goal in the last few minutes. Do you think, think it'll be that tight? I think it'll be much tighter than we expect it to be because um, there's a big fight that happens first before you decide who wins. Mm. And so there could be all sorts of chaos. If you're England, you're just trying to cause chaos, get somebody sent off, get somebody sin-binned, you know, rile them up. Maro Toje, yeah. at the bottom of a rook, Throw him in. Ireland yeah. have traditionally had a little bit of a problem with him. <laughs> Anyway. Does Borthwick want that chaos? I don't know. He, does, he has he decisions does. to make. Do you, do you make loads of wholesale changes after a game at last weekend? I don't know. Maybe you stick with it. Give us your views. 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. If you want to leave a comment, you need to be subscribed. So make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And uh, you can always tweet us at off the ball AM as well. I'm delighted to say Jonathan Wilson is with us. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm oh, very well, thanks. How are you? Um, we're trying to make sense of what happened with Manchester City last night. Uh are they now the automatic favourites for this competition, given that they've un- unleashed in Europe exactly what they wanted to do? Or is this just a result and the next round will be totally different? Um, uh, I'm going to give you the cowardly answer and say both. I, th- I think they're already probably the favourites. I, th- I think Napoli are the team playing the best football in Europe. But Napoli have never been to the quarterfinals of either the European Cup or the Champions League. So it's completely new territory for them. Um, City, I think, in, in a season when a lot of top clubs have, maybe because of the World Cup, maybe for other reasons, have, have struggled. I think City were the favourites anyway. Um, the ease with which they dispatched Leipzig in the end, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's hugely to their credit and obviously bolsters those, those credentials. However, we have seen them win games very comfortably before, uh, and then they, 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 they slip up. And I, I think, yeah, my feeling with last night's game, I suspect, is, is different to a lot of people's, which is that yes, we Holland's goal scoring was was amazing. Um, the De Bruyne I thought was excellent. John Stones I thought had a great game at right back, moving the midfield. And actually, to be honest, the Holland issue, you know, we knew he was a brilliant goal scorer. I'm not sure it taught us that much more. Um, De Bruyne returning to form, I think, is is more significant. Stones being able to play that sort of took the in fullback role. I think it's potentially more significant. But actually, for me, the most important thing is that of the five Holland goals, four of them came from corners. And City are not a team you would previously... I mean, OK, one of them a penalty following a corner, but uh, yeah, f- four corners essentially leading to goals. City are not a team you previously would have thought of as being strong from set pieces. So if they have that extra, you know, that extra arrow in their quiver then that's a very, very positive thing for them in, in tighter games going forward. One of the points I was making earlier on in the programme was that he also just picked the obvious team, which has not always been the hallmark of Pep Guardiola in the Champions League. Yeah, the, the obvious team, and yet he was still able to leave out Foden and Mahrez, which tells you how great their squad is. Uh, I think one of the problems City have, like problems, you know, it's not a problem, but one, one of the features of City is their squad is so good 
that there is not really an obvious team. This was one of multiple obvious teams. Uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't tricksy. It wasn't over clever. Um, but even then, you know, we, we say that and, you, and, you, and you're right. You didn't look at that team and think, oh, Christ, what's he done here? Mm-hmm. You, but it was four centre-backs across the back. I mean, okay, John Stones is not a Tony Pulis style centre-back. Um, but that, that's that's interesting that, that this, a coach who sort of three or four years ago, you just said his ideal team would have been, yeah, 10 full-backs and a goalkeeper. Um, suddenly picking a team with no fullbacks, uh, that you know he's he's redefined the role of a fullback so to such an extent that yeah you know, they're no longer fullbacks. Um, so yeah, we are continually seeing that 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 evolution. Sorry, that's an excellent point. I guess I meant that he picked uh, Gundogan and Rodri and um, a front three. Well, uh, so he managed to fit De Bruyne and Silva and Haaland and Grealish in the team, and it looks like that shape was perfect. But to go back to the four four centre backs, um, is this going to be them for the rest of the season? Do you think, or what? what what's behind that? Was it a, a I don't know. The, is he is he disciplining Kyle Walker at the moment for uh, his off field activities, or is there it just uh, he thought that, that was the right thing to do against Leipzig? Um. Well, I, I think Walker's form has not been great since the World Cup, so I, I think it's probably a combination of you know he's not playing particularly well, plus the the off field stuff. You know, left backs he's got Gomez, but very inexperienced, and he doesn't actually have any left backs because he's you know he sold them all. He sold Zinchenko and then sold Jack Cancelo for, for whatever reason in January. So to to an extent, maybe this has been forced upon him. But you know, I I thought the way Stones played that role. Yeah, he obviously doesn't have a pace of Walker. He doesn't get forward quite in the same Walker do, quite in the same way that Walker does. But I think one of the things Guardiola really wants, one of the reasons he needs his fullbacks to, or a fullback to tuck into midfield and, and, and be become a a holding holding midfielder when in possession, is he's paranoid about getting caught on the break. And whenever things go wrong for City, it's because they've got caught on the break or because of overcomplicated things by trying not to be caught on the break. If Stones can fulfil that holding midfield slash fullback role, then then that I think helps helps counter that fear. Um, the, 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 one, the one thing I would say about about last night's game, look, I mean seven nil, you can't can't pick holes in it really, but they did get three big refereeing decisions went their way, which set the tone for the game, and then Leipzig sort of fell apart. So. I don't think that's not, nothing, by the way, because they were like, so everybody's like, oh, it was an overwhelming uh, body of evidence to suggest they were going to win the game. There was, but in all the games that they've lost, they've missed a load of chances early on mm. and something has kind of inside them gone, oh, this isn't going to be our night, a, a constriction around the throat and all of a sudden we're like, oh, Pep overthought it again. Yeah, and even the first game in Leipzig, um, you know, very, very comfortable first half. Yeah, if you had a criticism in that first half, it was they weren't ruthless enough. It wasn't, you know, they had Leipzig rattled and they didn't really sort of go for it. In, in the same way I criticised Bayern in, in the first half, in the first leg against PSG, that I, I think a really, really, really good team recognises when the opponents have lost it and, and kills them off for two or three goals then. And, and City didn't do that and Leipzig were much better second half. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make too much of refereeing decisions because I think Henriks was incredibly unfortunate with that handball. But having said that, he got away with a blatant handball in injury time in the first leg. Um, the the way Holland clipped the keeper as, as he closed him down in the build of the second goal, I'm not sure that is a foul. But it is something you do see getting given as a foul sometimes. So, again, I don't want to say that it's a, it's a horrendous decision, 
But it's a big decision that went their way that might not have done. I, I actually think the one that, that they really got away with was, was Edison. Yeah. Um, uh, who was it? He cleared. Uh But I mean, that was a, I mean, keepers do get away with that kind of thing, but that was a, that was a bad, a bad challenge. Um, and whether, whether he brushed the ball or not, he's absolutely clattered through the man. And yeah, you, know, you think back uh, the Liverpool City game where the, the, there was a, you know, I mean, we're talking, what, four years ago now, the, the 5-0, when a very similar incident, essentially a, a collision, two players running together, and, and um, it was Marnie got sent off in that, that situation, wasn't it? But, you know, I, I, I think there's a recklessness to that challenge that, that could easily be a red card another night. So, you know, once they once they got ahead, once Leipzig started to wobble, City were absolutely brilliant, absolutely ruthless. And as I say, I think the set plays issue is a big thing, and Stone's issue is a big thing. But I'm not sure it was the overwhelming 7-0 that, that, that it's been portrayed by some people this morning. Jonathan, there seems to be almost an element of smugness about Pep Guardiola in his, in his post-match, talking about the, the decisions he's had to make, whether it's Foden or, or leaving out Mares, as you say, and these decisions coming up coming up trumps. Um, like he even referenced Bernardo Silva on the left as well. But certainly these calls he's making are working at the moment. And even you know leaving De Bruyne out for a game and, and then him coming back in last night and having, having a game like he did and the impact on the game that he did. Clearly, some of these decisions right now are working. Yeah, and I, I, I don't, I don't mind the manager saying I got it right. Like, they get enough criticism when they get it wrong. So, I, I, I'd far rather they they sound slightly smug and explaining what they did mm-hmm. than refuse to talk about it. So, I don't, I don't really begrudge anybody that. Yeah, he, he got it right. I think it, the treatment of De Bruyne is, is really interesting. That uh, you have a specific criticism he made that. Yes, he's creating chances, but he's not holding the ball well enough. I think that is still... I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about his paranoia about getting done on the break. And I think this issue of control is still the big issue for City. Because for for all that now, that you know, the talk this morning is, oh, Holland, how can you possibly say he's made them worse? Well, I don't think it's a question of making them worse, but it's a question of making them different. So if you extrapolate from the 26 games they played in the league this season and assume they'll go on the same rate... They would score 94 goals. Well, last season they scored 99. So they added a great goal scorer and they're on course to score five goals fewer. Even more worrying than that, I mean, much more worrying than that, last season they conceded 26 goals. This season they're on course to concede 35. So they have become more open. And I think that's an understandable consequence of having a player like Holland who needs the ball earlier. If you're playing the ball earlier, you're necessarily playing more risky passes. You're not set to, to, to deal with a counter should that ball be lost. And so I, I think it's interesting that that's the criticism that Guardiola is making, that he's saying, yeah, De Bruyne is still making these passes. He is still creating the chances. But the consequence of the speed with which he's playing those passes is that it leaves City a bit more open. He is giving the ball away a bit more. I think getting that balance right, the the risk-reward element of it, I think that is still the issue that, that City haven't necessarily quite worked out yet and it's something they're going through and I think it's why we've seen some of their recent league games have been pretty stodgy I mean that game at Palace at the weekend where I mean look, they were comfortably the better side fully deserved the win but it was a real grinding 1-0 from a game that in the past you might have expected them to win maybe 3 or 4-0 and I think they are still just just trying to work out how do you accommodate Holland? how do you get the ball forward to him as quickly as he needs it while still retaining the, the capacity to deal with a potential counter-attack. I'm not for a minute suggesting Man City aren't capable of, of challenging on a, on a number of fronts, but 
when you look at the fact that they have, you know, the FA Cup still to play, the Champions League being an, an obsession for Pep Guardiola at this stage to win it with City, whereas Arsenal have, yeah, the Europa League, of course they want to win it and a bit of silverware would be nice, but the Premier League is going to be their sole major focus, you'd imagine, between, between now and the end of the season. Are, are Arsenal at an advantage compared to Man City, do you feel, Jonathan, in terms of challenging on a, on a number of fronts? Um, I, mean, I think the advantage they might have is they get to play in the league this weekend and if they win that they're eight points clear and okay they played a game more but what that means is um, you can City obviously have the FA Cup game against Burnley this weekend what that means is that City know they can't slip up and I, I it's one of those things that shouldn't make a difference but I think you, you talk to players and they always sort of say I mean partly they say oh we're just focusing on ourselves but yeah, they also sort of let on that, you know, we. it's easier to play at the same time as the opponent because you're not, you're not sort of aware that right, there's no space for slipping up here. It's, I think it's easier to focus on your own game when you don't know what the opponent's done. So for Arsenal to get that eight-point lead, in the same way that when Arsenal were only two points clear, even though they had a game in hand, that didn't feel anywhere near as secure as five points. Well, eight points having played a game more feels a lot more secure than than five points having played the same number. So if Arsenal win this weekend, I think that does add to their advantage, yeah. The the point you make about um, City still trying to, to work out exactly how to get the balance right between their risk of uh, being more open and the goals that might come if they manage to unlock this, it's really interesting to watch that unfold in, in real time because we are watching one of the world's great managers wrestle with the fact that he has this shiny new toy that he knows is really, really important if he can just make it work. Um, and that's the challenge for him for the rest of the season. If, if he gets that right, then there's a good chance that they reach a Champions League final and, and what happens on the night happens on the night. But um, I guess that's the, the big imponderable that we're going to be watching for every game to see, has he tweaked it? Is he getting, is he getting the balance more in favour of uh, being able to hit last season's goal tally without conceding more. Are we watching are we watching a great experiment unfold before our eyes? Yeah, I think I mean the experiment maybe it's not not quite the right word because that makes it sound a lot riskier than it is, but we are we are seeing a manager working through a, a problem. You know, a great manager, you're one of the greatest thinkers about football has ever been, working through an issue and it, it's fascinating to see. And you can sort of it's you know it's a, it's a real privilege to see it in real time, but right from the community shield. You could see, you know, it was very obvious that game. But they're not getting the ball forward enough, quick, quickly enough. And then the, well, they, I think it was was it West Ham they played the, the first week of the Premier League season, and Holland did get the two goals. Or he did seem to be going forward a bit quicker. But then we've seen that's left them open, and the opponents have started to work that out. You have to counter that, and we're still in that process of flux. And I, I think it's really interesting to see a manager like Guardiola sort of really wrestling with his principles. His principles are not to play those long balls, not not to play those long passes, and yet he's being forced to do it. And you know, for early on, with the score was still nil-nil when it happened. So I think it was probably eight, ten minutes in yesterday. Uh, and it was Nathan Ake played a, a pass, 60, 70-yard pass over the top. And Holland ran onto it and, and got a toe to it. And the, the keeper made quite a good save. And that's not the sort of chance that City would have been creating the previous five years that Guardiola's been there. So they have changed. And it, it, I, I guess it is a case of having this new weapon, a weapon that can really hurt opponents, um, that, that makes it really complicated for opponents. Because if you sit deep, he'll he'll win headers against you. If you push up, you'll hit the space behind you. Um, but at the same time, it slightly disrupts the patterns and the, 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 the passing flow and the domination of the possession, which has been City's characteristic, which has been Guardiola's characteristic right since he became a manager in 2008. 
and, and balancing those two things off. And and I think Guardiola is such an ideological manager, and I, I think that's natural for somebody who came through at Barcelona. You've seen Xavi talking in much the same way, that he has this idea, his 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 strictures of football, his rules of football. Uh, it, it, it's sort of a, a quasi-religion that... that you cannot be heretical from this. This is the one one true way of playing. And then he gets his other way of playing and he's somehow having to adapt those principles. And there must be part of him that thinks, oh, you know what, just, just whack it. If we're struggling a bit, whack it over the top, whack it yeah. over the top. It doesn't have to be a good ball. You think of the goal they scored, was it the third goal they scored against Villa when yeah, Callum Chambers and very little pressure just heads the ball to nowhere and creates a chance just because a ball was within 20 yards of Holland. You can do that. And yet Guardiola, all his footballing principles are telling him not to do that. So yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing to watch him working that through and trying to 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 communicate that idea, his understanding of that to his team. And De Bruyne is the most important player in that because he is the brains of the side. You know, in a very intelligent side, he is the brains of it. And Guardiola clearly feels that that De Bruyne's interpretation of that has slightly deviated from what he would like. And De Bruyne at the same time, I think, has had a, a bit of a post-World Cup blip. Yeah, anybody who saw him at the World Cup saw how frustrated he was with the way Belgium played. You know, that that, that interview he gave after, was after the Canada game when he got man of the match and was incredibly grumpy about being made man of the match. So oh, I didn't deserve it. I was rubbish today. We were all rubbish. And he, I think he's come back with a bit of a sulk still on. And Guardiola's having to work through those um, issues of character and temperament uh, as as well. And that, I think, is not something Guardiola finds easy. I don't think he's the world's most natural man-manager. Uh, Jonathan, I, like many other football fans, like to pride myself every four years in watching as many World Cup matches as I possibly can, uh, sitting down and, and soaking it all in. 2026, they're not making it easy, are they? I mean, what is it, 104 matches? 12, or four groups of, or 12 groups of four teams. So, I mean, the amount of football in 2026 is, is just going to be Ridiculous. What are your thoughts on this extended tournament? Uh, it's just just gloom. Um, I mean, a, a 39-day tournament, I think, is what they're talking about. It's a long, long time. I mean, look, I'm talking about this entirely, entirely selfishly to start with. As a journalist, a World Cup, and you have to go for a couple of days beforehand and you, you leave sort of a day or two afterwards. So the World Cup was already five weeks. Now it's going to be six weeks, maybe slightly more. That's an incredibly grueling thing. You work every day. You work 16, 18 hours a day. It destroys you. Um, and you saw this World Cup, a lot of, I'm, I'm only a journalist now, I shouldn't be doing this, but loads of journalists were ill and loads of journalists have struggled to recover post-World Cup. So God knows what it's like for players. Um, yeah, every tournament is getting bigger. You know, Champions League, they're adding games to it. The World Club Championship, are adding games to it. The Euros, they've added games to it. The African Cup of Nations have added games to you know, players will break down. Um, journalists will break down. Nobody cares about that, but people will break down. But also, 104 games, yeah. I, I find 64 games is just beyond my capacity. I can, I'm very enthusiastic at the beginning of the groups. Towards the end of the groups, my enthusiasm wanes a bit, apart from those games that, that yeah, actually mean something. And of course, the problem is there are going to be far fewer of them because of the games that mean something, because if you win your first two games, you're through. There's far less jeopardy for teams. Um, so I I hate the format. And, and I, just, I think at, at some point you've got to stop expanding. You've got to say, look, Enough. I'm sorry, it's, it's not for everybody. Some teams will not qualify. 
Uh, and there has to be an, an element that this is the elite. Now, you may want to rejig qualifying slightly and maybe you make you, you, you create more intercontinental playoffs. Maybe that's a way to sort of open it up so you get more African or Asian or, or CONCACAF teams there that, that you don't have half the Commonwealth teams naturally getting through. Maybe there's scope to, 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 to tweak that. But just make it bigger. Yeah, I'm somebody who loves football, who makes money. The more football there is, the more money I make because I you know, get paid to watch it and to write about it and think about it. And I'm approaching this with a sense of exhaustion. I, I think a, a lot of a lot of. I mean, okay, there will there are keen fans who will watch everything, but there's going to be a lot of fans who find, as with the cricket World Cup, that their enthusiasm sort of sags a bit in the middle. And I think you know there'll be a lot of people who end up rather than trying to watch every game. Just sort of think, oh, yeah, you know, I'll catch up with that later, just because I don't have the, the bandwidth to this. Yeah. So, but it, but my actually my, my my bigger problem is the eight best third place teams going through. I, I just think that that takes away a huge element of the jeopardy. Um, and, you know, it's also just the the absurdity of the you know, the, the, the the blatantness with which Infantino says one thing one day and another thing the next. It's and it's all such obvious nonsense. That, oh, Qatar was the greatest World Cup ever, but we're going to rip up that format and do something completely different. Well, if it was the greatest World Cup ever, just do the same thing again, rather than making it bigger, diluting it, bloating it, and just leaving everybody shattered. Jonathan. Um, so, yeah, not looking forward to it. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. You were great with your time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. That's Jonathan Wilson. Always great to have him on the show. It's uh, 8.48. Cahill uh, is here to give us an update on what's going on. Cahill, how are you? Morning, lads. How's it going? All well. Um, I suppose Erling Haaland, the big story from last night, five times on the mark in City's 7-0 demolition of Orby Leipzig. You uh, forget he's 22. Ah, it's ridiculous. Well, I was just looking through all the records that he's broken, and he's broken the Man City uh, season scoring record already, and it's only March. (laughs) What, you know, 15, 20 games left. And that's a record that stood for nigh on 100 years. So uh, it's hard to believe, really. Um, it's like we were touching on Jack Van Portfleet earlier with, with Matt Dawson, the English scrum half. And I was like, I felt bad. I feel bad all the criticism being directed his way. But then I remember, because he's 21, but then I remember Haaland. Haaland's 22. Yeah. He's a kid as well, essentially. And, and yet he's tearing up the biggest European club competition. Yeah. Right. Remarkable. Yeah. Um, so City through to the quarterfinals. Inter are there as well. They had a goal to straw away to Porto last night. They were one of the winners on uh, aggregate in that tie. So Liverpool tonight trying to come back from 5-2 down against Real Madrid. Jurgen Klopp suggesting that they have a 1% chance. Uh, so some chance, but not uh, too big a chance according to Jurgen Klopp in that game tonight. That one kicks off at 8. And the other game is Napoli against Eintracht Frankfurt. Napoli have a 2-0 advantage in that tie after the uh, first leg in the Premier League tonight Southampton could move out of the relegation zone if they win at home to Brentford and Brighton could go level on points with Liverpool with a win at home to Crystal Palace and in the WSL tonight a big game at the bottom as Leicester take on Tottenham uh, the racing you'll be talking to John in just a second but lots to look forward to on day two of the Cheltenham Festival the champion chase is the feature at half past three the action gets underway at half one this afternoon and in Gaelic Games a blow for the Tipperary hurlers are going well in the National League but Seamus Callanan has been ruled out for six to eight weeks that's with a medial knee ligament injury he sustained in their win over Waterford at the weekend tip play Clare in their opening championship match in the Munster Championship on April the 23rd they face Cork a fortnight later so Callanan in a race to be fit for the championship it looks like at this stage Alright Carl, good stuff more from Carl across the day of course it is 8.50 time for us to turn to Cheltenham and they're off mark your card on off the ball 
with Boyle Sports. Make this Cheltenham epic. 18 plus. Gamble responsibly. See gamblingcare.ie. John Duggan is back with us. John, good morning to you. Jaron Shane, good morning. Uh, yesterday we spoke about the anticipation at the start of the day, but really it was uh, towards the end of the day when Constitution Hill won but followed, I think, by, I made the case earlier, one of the all-time great moments in Irish sport, the end of Honeysuckle's Cheltenham career and victory for Henry de Bromhead at, you know, in the midst of the grief that the family are feeling. Um, it was just really incredible. Yes, uh, Ger, uh, you could see it in Rachel's reaction when she crossed the line on Honeysuckle. Uh, I, felt, I think she was in tears. The emotion just was, was, she was exhausted. She could feel it was such a effort to get over the line because it looked like Lovanois was going to win the race. But Honeysuckle, such a gutsy performer and four wins now at Cheltenham for her in, in four successive years. But I think it's all of the story is about Henry, really. And... I spoke to him after the race and the strength that he showed, the dignity uh, in what is a very difficult situation for him. Um, I just really felt that a deep, visceral, unspoken love was in the atmosphere and in the environment yesterday for Henry and the de Bromhead family. And he was getting so many people coming up and embracing him and hugging him. And uh, Sport has that ability to warm the heart in the most difficult of circumstances. And yesterday was one of those days. And you could really feel the best of humanity in that winner's enclosure after the race. We actually we will play two snippets now from uh, your interviews with both the, the winning jockey and the winning trainer. I think we're going to start with Henry here. Have a look. It's incredible. And then to see the reception she got and we got, you know, everyone's just showing their support to us with... After what's happened to us, you know, losing Jack and everything, it's, you know, any time we have a winner at any of these meetings, the support we get is incredible. And look, not that you can depend on it, but it's lovely when it makes things a little bit easier when it does happen. It makes it uh, maybe 1% easier, maybe? Yeah, yeah. 0.001 you know but it's but like yeah you know it's uh, someone said every time there's been two races run in Jack's name and um, we didn't win them but we won races on the same day and after we won each race this big rainbows appeared and I haven't seen it but someone said they sent me a photo there was a small little rainbow just behind Rachel after she pulled up so we know he's always with us and uh, yeah it's really tough but uh, like I say as we said, these days can make, you know, they help a tiny bit. Uh, look, it was just an unbelievable day. Um, it's been an unbelievable journey with her. She's been incredible. Henry's done a sensational job with her. And, like, to get to finish like that, walk back in in Cheltenham, so special. You think about it, four runs at Cheltenham, four wins. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, but like, testament to Henry and the way he's trained her, to be honest, uh, like, to bring her back here every year um, and have her have her the way he has her like it's just unbelievable Davy Roach's head lad as well like head lad and assistant trainer he does a massive he plays a massive role down in Ockeen and um, yeah and Coleman who looks after and rides her out and yeah it's just it's a massive team effort What was your feelings going into the race were you confident? Yeah look I was like I have to be confident in her it'd be very weird if I wasn't so yeah look it was brilliant she got the job done uh, got the job done it wasn't one of those um, victories that we've seen before where she completely destroyed the field there, absolutely was digging it out over the last she was because there's an extra half a mile so it's two and a half miles and, and it's harder for her I think over that distance Honeysuckle she's nine years of age now I think they're retiring her for the right reasons because 
you know, she, she should be having a happy retirement. And I think Rachel and Honey Suckle have captured the nation's imagination over the last few years. I think they've been really able to illuminate the racing landscape and, and, and bring ra- racing into the front page of, of the newspapers and, and, and onto the news part of the TV um, the, the success they've had together to win two champion hurdles and two Maris hurdles and even before the season Honeysuckle was unbeaten so um, it was just from a racing perspective it was the fairy tale and then you had the obviously the sadness with Henry and, and then the way he spoke afterwards was, was just so admirable you know She's one of our great sports people, Rachel Blackmore, John, isn't she? I mean, even just the way she conducted herself after the race, it just kind of typified the woman. Absolutely. And remember, she's only turned pro eight years ago, and she's in her early 30s now. So she didn't have it easy. It took her months to ride her first winner, and to go and do what she's done, it's just incredible to ride the winner of the champion hurdle a couple of times the gold cup on a blue tar last year the grand national on manila time she's had an unbelievable run and she's been a great ambassador and from speaking to everybody in the game and just speaking to people around the country rachel blackmore is so popular she is so popular with young people uh, young boys and girls and uh, she's a great ambassador for the sport and it's just been a brilliant story uh, rachel and honeysuckle and um, hopefully, hopefully there'll be more to come with Rachel and hopefully she's got another couple of years ahead of her. Is there any chance that Honeysuckle might fetch up to Punchestown? There is a chance, you never know, but I, I did feel that yesterday was it. I did feel that you, you couldn't get a better moment, I feel, than, than that and I, I don't think they need to if, they, if they'd like to because obviously it's our national racing festival in Ireland at Punchestown so that you could understand being the reason for it um, for another swan song but the horse, is, the horse is well, the horse is safe, and I almost feel that yesterday was was it. Yeah, okay. Um, I saw Johnny Ward making the point that they should do whatever they can at Punchestown to get Constitution Hill over because Constitution Hill is the new superstar that is capturing the public's imagination after as dominant a performance as you're ever going to see. Yes, he jumped the last hurdle a bit far out, so he, he nearly clipped the back end of it. And that would have been just a, a, a disaster in the race. But look, ultimately, this horse, as I said, you know, if he starts going into the air and flying, you wouldn't be surprised. I really, really, really now hope they go for the Gold Cup over fences. They've been running over hurdles. They won a champion hurdle. Like Nico de Bonville didn't even take the whip out. I would have won on them, Jerry. You would have won on them. Shane would have won on them. <laughs> I would have fallen yeah. off after the first hurdle. But nice of you to... Uh... <laughs> I, I wouldn't have hyped for a jockey, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, um, and I wouldn't be able to do the weight. So, <laughs> so Constitution Hill. Um, I, like Dawn Run is the only horse to have ever done it. The champion hurdle Gold Cup double in 1986. It's, and it's a very difficult thing to do because you're going from like a two-mile distance to a three-and-a-quarter-mile distance. You're going from a, a hurdle to a fence. But I do, I do think this horse is look. He looks like a chaser, and I do think they should go that route. Will Nicky Henderson come to Punchestown? I hope so. He likes Punchestown. He likes um, coming over to Ireland, and I'd love to see it. Okay, oh, but, and especially with the Barragherty link as well. Mm. Today it's um, the Champion Chase and the Bumper. Uh, talk to us about the Champion Chase. What do we expect here? Well, John hasn't put the hat uh, on yet, Jer. That no. That, that's the no. Come. Come. Sorry, John. Sorry, I didn't, didn't want to ruin your surprise. Stick to the script, Hannon. It says Hannon, it here. Stick it to the script, it man. Just letters. read the script. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stick to the script, Shane. Come on, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have... Um, Colin shaking his head in there. You're in a lot of trouble. So I'm done after this. <laughs> yeah. Three, three horses uh, in, in this. Um, Energiman won the race last year. 
and that horse is trained by Willie Mullins and uh, will be ridden by Paul Townend. Disappointed last time at Cheltenham in January behind Edward Stone and editor De Geese, who won the race. Edward Stone is the winner of the novice chase last year, the Arkle chase over two miles. And you've edited to G2 is an improving type. I think Edward Stone's going to win it. I think Edward Stone is a really good jumper. I think he'll improve. It will be better ground today than it was in January. I don't think he was cherry ripe back then. And I just have a feeling. Look, we saw at Fasal Vega yesterday that Willie Mullins' horse could put a disappointing run behind him. But I'd want to see better than I did from Edward Jim in the last day. Um, if he's going to repeat uh, the feat of winning his champion chase in second year in a row. I like Edward Stone in that. I think it's between the three of them. I can't see another one. The bumper, a lovely story that John Gleeson, the son of the RT TV broadcaster Brian Gleeson, is doing his leaving cert this year, and he rides a dream to share uh, for John Kiley down in Waterford. That's a great story. And we also have a fact of file. Patrick Mullins is riding that. That's a tip in itself. There's a couple of horses in the green colours. Um, fun, fun, fun. And... Yeah, that, that's got a, a big chance in the bumper as well. And the, you know, so I'm looking through it here. Fun, fun, fun. We'll have, what, Daryl Jacob on board. That horse just cruised clear at Leopardstown last time out. And then It's For Me, ridden by Paul Townend, was the most, most visually impressive bumper horse I saw. It's For Me. But always look where Patrick Mullins is going, and he's riding fact to file. So, look, uh, it's an open race. There's 24 runners. Yeah, uh, fact to file is a Willie Mullins horse in JP's colours, and Patrick Mullins is on board. So, you know. Uh, yeah. Right, it's time. It's time for JD's. What's going to happen here, Shane? I wonder. Come on, tell us. Go on. <laughs> it's time for John Duggan's charity tips hey. of the day. <laughs> I'm still surprising, well, to be fair. Yeah, it cost bad. forty-five pounds, lads. Forty-five pounds. Oof. Yeah, and there was one going for sixty-nine pounds, and another. There was another shop um, in the in the. They've got this big tent with all the kind of marquee and all these shops. They were, they were pouring out glasses of champagne while they were uh, selling half a set of scarves yesterday uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning. And um, obviously, I'm a professional. I wouldn't, wouldn't go there. But if you're off, uh, it's, a, it's not a bad idea, actually. It's you not tip, a bad idea. You tipped the 18 to 1 winner, Jazzy Maddy, yesterday, John. So that paid for the hat. That was the uh, fairy tale of New York. Um, came in at 18 to 1. Hey. Uh, yeah, yeah. A yeah, lot, yeah, lot of yeah. controversy about that, of course. Why? Came in at 10 to 1. Is what? 18. Colm thought it was all these years. He's been singing the wrong lyrics. Called out. So Colm Buhig's karaoke life in Cork is now, uh, his reputation's in, in, in shreds. Absolutely. Matters. I mean, how, how does anybody know it's not 18 to 1? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of Christmas he's, Eve's wasted, Colm. He's singing in our ears. Unfortunately, the rest of the world can't hear it, or fortunately for our ratings. Who knows? Maybe we should get bad singing on it. That's why. That's how they built the whole um, pop idol thing. Anyway, John, I like the hat. Yeah. And the other thing that they, was reported, um, the most expensive pint of Guinness in the world, but it's actually, it's not really a pint of Guinness. It's black velvet. But uh. the Daily Mail were loving this. 20 pounds, 20 of your finest oh. king what? pounds for a pint with a, 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 da- a top of, instead of my body, it's champagne. In a plastic cup. Presume it's plastic, yeah. Uh, well, they've, ex- they've, they've extended the Guinness Village. I need to go down and see what it's like because apparently they've extended it. The Guinness Village is one of these beautiful um, Christine Meccas at nine o'clock in the morning oh. that just turns into this, uh, I don't know what, what you want to call it, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Decadent and depraved. That sounds like paradise. Yes, uh, at, at five o'clock in the evening. A Guinness Village. I actually, I live opposite the, the Guinness factory there in uh, in Smithfield. Right across, literally, you open the window, you, you step onto the balcony and you can, you can see, it's like Willy Wonka's factory. You can see your Guinness being made. You can smell the barley and the oats and the hops. 
So Guinness Village sounds like uh, paradise to me. Shane's balcony sounds very posh, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, ooh, look at me, my balcony. That's very small. Yeah, I don't my minions. <laughs> my um, notions. So, we Go got on, Paul's we tips, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Rescue this part of the show here, JD. Come um, on. Ball Sports giving us the 200 euro. Uh, we are obviously up about 97 already. Um, the nap is Edward Stone at half three, at six to four for 50. Um, 130 Champ Kylie each way at 8 to 1 for 15 each way Champ Kylie is a horse I've been impressed with this season I think he's got a nice turn of foot he could be an each way chance Time Hill in the novice's chase at 210 at 9 to 1 for 10 each way Iker Allen at 25 to 1 for Willie Mullins uh, on, on a longer distance now in the colours of J.B. McManus might be worth a 10 euro each way bet in the 250 the 410 I think Delta Work will win the cross country he's 6 to 5 for 30 bucks the 450 midnight run as 18 to 1 for Joseph O'Brien, first time in a handicap for 10 each way, and the 530. I'm going to go for fact to file 9 to 2 for 15 each way. So the each way bets, fact to file, midnight run, uh, Iker Allen at 25 to 1, and Time Hill and Champ Kylie, and the win bets, Delta Work, and the nap of the day, lads, Edward Stone in the champion chase. All right, JD, good stuff. Enjoy today. Happy punting. Thanks a million. Thanks, Jer. Thanks, Shane. Cheers, John. And they're all. Mark your card on Off the Ball. With Boyle Sports, make this Cheltenham epic. 18 plus, gamble responsibly. See gamblingcare.ie. Uh, loads of comments coming in a little bit earlier on. The carpet man says, Matt Dawson, one hell of a scrum half. Uh, Mr. Quinn says, I can't believe how disrespected Honeysuckle was prior to the race. A lot of prominent pundits completely disregarded her. She was always the best horse in the race. I think, mm. like, it was nip and tuck going down to the last and she absolutely had to dig deep. So I can see why, uh, you know, not odds on and um, in the end it was good value Holland will go missing in the bigger game says Shane he's a top in merchant lad says Chris a, a lot of top ins sorry but like you as, have to be there as, don't you as goal hangers go it's what you it have is to be there yeah, there you go yeah, what it is 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 the movement and the expe- the expectation that a goalkeeper or defender is going to make a mistake because some strikers just rest in their laurels Veghorst being one of them who kind of just waits Haaland interprets a situation and, and sees it coming before anyone else does the behind the goals shot of the header that was the second goal I think um, where he just follows in the incredible thunderbolt oh. uh, from De Bruyne yeah. it's, it's as you say it, that is like peak he keeps moving the whole time always moving forward constantly relentlessly moving forward and still, like as the ball is coming to him, he's getting up to his full height. Like, yeah, he's not small. The head, the header wasn't easy. From the one, the one that the Bruyne shot that hit the, hits the crossbar and bounces up. First of all, his height allows him to get the power in the header because he, he gets there with with ease. But then just he like a the power, <laughs> praying mantis falcon. Yeah, he was just ah. Uh, he's you can say what you like about the nature of the goals, the, the five goals. Like yeah, De Bruyne's last goal in injury time was probably the goal of the night, but. Uh, Haaland has to be there and um, the finish the finishes are just sublime like he's just Sorry, incredible more, more a cobra than a praying mantis <laughs> mm. although he is he's a little bit uh, googling praying mantis there he's a little bit sticky isn't he yeah. uh, do you know what height Mac Hansen is what height Mac Hansen uh, he looks about 6'1 I want to say yeah, yeah is he yeah 6'2 6'2 I was very surprised well, you thought he was smaller yeah really Oh, I was like, he's a, he's a 5'10", 5'11 guy. He's beside... He's a little lad. Taller guy. He is a little lad. No, he's definitely not a little lad. He's, um... There's a good piece in the London Times where they're, um... They're, they're, they, I, no one seems to care about the, we all hate the English thing. They're kind of taking that as, um... <laughs> the, the Telegraph doesn't mention Ireland today in the rugby coverage, uh, by the way. It's mad. It's like, 
it's just pictures of Manitoulagi. But uh, the London Times are like, oh, this team are pretty good. Mac Hansen is an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Um, they've talked to one of his former teammates at the Brumbies, who, um, and also got the story of the Rook Bar, or is it the RUC Bar? Wouldn't that be ironic? Where Andy Friend's son was the barman, and that's where that. they met. Right. And uh, and they got chatting. He's like, oh, my ma's from Cork. And he's like, I should tell me dad. And he, sure he did. And here we are. Jesus. You know, in the running for um, certainly making the team of the tournament. Little butterfly effect moments that, that have that shape history. Maybe we wouldn't have won the Grand Slam without Mac Hansen's performance the last no, day. No, you know, but the drunken Irish and their Irish bars going around the world finding world-class rugby players. Yeah. Stay to them. Put that in your uh, skit on Sunday Night Live, what? <laughs> No, I'm 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 excited about Mac Hansen. Like he's uh, he's just got an attitude as well, a swagger about him that uh, he knows he's good, and I love that. Well, I just every single decision he made, it was one of those ten out of ten performances. I think you can't pick a hole in his performance last day, the last day. So, yeah, the English are not talking about us; they're ignoring us. Yeah. Uh Graham Shaw, well said, Keith Wood. Ireland could struggle and win by three points. It's not complacency. England won't lie down. The Six Nations is never easy. When you think about it, right? Like Wales in their first game under Gatland gave us a good game for a period of time. Mm. We didn't absolutely annihilate them until later on. And I think we're not going to have Dan Sheehan, it looks like. We're not going to have uh, fully fit Gary Ringrose, who, you know, before he missed the game, was like definitely in the running for player of the tournament. Mm. Uh, although Gibson Park coming back is a bit of a balancing to that. Like, how does Ty Furlong hold up after last week and the exploits where you kind of figured they'd give Furlong 45-50 minutes because yeah. that's all they need to give him and actually it turned out they needed to give him loads more than that so I like I, I think that there's a, a world where England come and pick a lot of our lads who know exactly how to manage a game and spoil and get in the referee's ear and cause a bit of trouble yeah, and the so crowd are a little bit like what's going on here we're all pissed and we're supposed to be celebrating and it's 45 minutes gone and it's 3-0 I, I think I understand the argument that it could be down to within a score I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards the, the thinking of the bookies 16 point spread I think it'll be a 20 point win I think like, now I want to hear what Andy Dunn has to say about this because he's been spot on in his prediction so far uh, in the tournament but I just have a feeling Ireland could do a job on them like the, yeah the occasion is massive and, and huge but these players are these players are more than ready for it so All right. I think they'll be up for it Wet Your Appetite with the Brian O'Driscoll podcast available in the uh OTB Rugby feed search OTB Rugby you can get John Duggan's tips every morning subscribe to our OTB daily feed and that's where you'll find Mark Your Card and then big conversation last night about the extended uh, FIFA World Cup on the football show make sure you subscribe subscribe to our football stream for that one and you can follow us across all of our social channels that's uh, at Off The Ball AM we're also on Instagram we have a rugby account we have our main account as well after this break we're talking Gaelic football ahead of well, it's going to be D-Day for a lot of teams, particularly in Division 2, but we'll get some analysis on the trends that we've seen so far, particularly from the scoring uh, side of things with Conor Gilligan coming next. In the ad break, though, a clip from the latest episode of The Football Pod where Paddy James and Tommy discuss Mayo. The Football Pod is in uh, partnership with AIB, proud sponsors of the Football Hurling and Camogie All-Ireland Club Championships. Check out the hashtag, the toughest, for more. You're listening to OTB AM. Right, you can get more high-end analysis on the football pods uh, with Paddy, James and Tommy if you just subscribe to the OTB GAA feed. We want to focus a little bit more on Division 2 and maybe some of the other trends that are coming out from the league so far. And I'm delighted to say Conal Gilligan is with us this morning. Conal, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Um, one of the things, Keane Johnson uh, um, 
when we were chatting about this in advance, he pointed out that one of the criticisms that Derry get is that they're ultimately very reliant on a single individual in Shane McGuigan to get the scores. And he's making the point that while that may be true, what difference does it make if you have a high scorer? If you look at uh, Galway, nobody's saying um, they're too reliant on Shane Walsh. If you look at Kerry, nobody's going, Jesus, take Clifford out of that team and you're in a bit of trouble. So um, are we are we maybe misrepresenting the Derry scenario here by focusing on Shane, Givens, uh, Shane McGuigan's incredible propensity to deliver high scores? Yeah, I think you are. I think probably in previous years that has been the case. But I think Shane McGuigan's game has definitely evolved. He's playing a lot more of his football out around the 40-metre line, and that stops him from being easily marked in. And I think if you've seen over the last number of games where he hasn't been his best, there has been other players stepped up. And, you know, Niall Toner comes in with the goal, Niall Lachlan's been coming in with the goal. And, and especially last year, Derry didn't really have the ability to come off the bench. But, you know, again, Dublin, two of the subs came off the bench and scored. And when you were expecting Dublin's sub bench to add the difference, it was actually Derry who done that. I think uh, it's a trap I've fallen into a lot where I'm analysing this Derry team and charting their evolution against the evolution of the Donegal team. And it's it's an easy, it's an easy and maybe it's a lazy thing to do. And yet it's very, it's very interesting because like they're kind of on the same trajectory as that Donegal side where they nailed down exactly what their identity was going to be from a defensive uh, style of play. They perfected that. And as the time has gone on, they're layering in levels of attacking threat and ability and just becoming better. Now, maybe that Donegal team had better better players. We'll see. And maybe their ceiling was slightly higher. But again, we'll see. If if I'm Derry, I'm relatively happy with the pace that the game is evolving. Yeah, well, I think when you go back to that Donegal team, uh, they had won a national league a couple of years previous to McGuinness and Gallagher coming in. So they had Michael Murphy, you know, they had so many good players. And, and I think Derry are actually a wee bit earlier in that and that some of their big players haven't just developed as quickly, you know. But when Connor Glass came back into the team, it gave them a midfield platform. And I think probably the fact that Shane McGuigan has now got a number of players to go on with them. And the one thing Rory Keller has been able to do is is take in young players and bed them in straight away. And it's just been seamless. And I think the Dublin game for I suppose us, us Derry supporters, we were looking at that as going to be the asset test in the league. And I don't actually think Derry played that badly in that first half in Dublin. But I think they played to the Division 2 level that they've been at. I think once Dublin opened up the gears and played better, I think it brought Derry to a new level. And I think Derry probably needed that. And and moving into the Clare game this weekend, I think Derry have layered up on what they've done. Defensively, they've been the soundest in the league. They've scored heavy, albeit racking up some big scores against Kildare and against Meath. But I think they've showed a real ruthless streak because it would have been easy to take the foot of the gas, but they haven't done that. And I think they've put themselves in a serious position and, I suppose I didn't expect. I thought Derry may have had to come down to the last league game against Cork. And I think Derry will have it done this weekend. And it leaves that a, a division very interesting below them. Do you expect uh, Conneth, Derry and Mayo, the two teams at the top of the top two divisions, to be there, thereabouts, come the, the real business end of the All-Ireland this year? Yeah, well, look, I think Mayo um, have been very, very impressive. Um, I think probably Conroy being back, um, Donoghue being back, you know, O'Shea going at full forward. I was at the RMI game and I thought he was brilliant that day. And I think probably had uh, Mio not taken him off that day, Mio probably would have got full points there in RMI. But um, I think what they've done and they've added layers to play things. And, you know, when Jack Kearney's come in and we've been looking at the likes of Kearney for the last number of years that he was going to come forward and now it looks like he's really stepped up. James Kiar, there's been so many options now for Mio um, that I think that while they haven't really been tested to the nth degree, 
I think they've showed enough that, you know, they're probably going to a league final. And I know in some of the podcasts and some of the media they've talked about teams not wanting to win the league. I'm not just so convinced about that because if you look at Kerry last year, they carried on their league form into the championship. And because I think it's Easter Sunday, the first round of the Connacht Championship, it comes very, very quick. Um, so I think teams can't buy form now. If you're not winning these games in the next week or two, you're going to be in really trouble come the, the provincial championships. And whether that matters or not, that's another question for the management. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a different scenario if Mayo are playing somebody who isn't Roscommon than if they're playing Roscommon twice in, in a week, essentially. You know, you would definitely want to win that game because they found it difficult to recover from not putting their full effort in last year, to your points. Yeah, look, and I think probably if it's not going to be Roscommon, and I don't think it is, I think Roscommon probably going to find the next couple of games sticky. You know, and when you look at it, you know, do Galway really want to push on? I definitely think Armagh would want to win that league. I think it'll be a massive statement for, for Kieran McGuinness side after him being there seven years. Galway may not want it as much, but I think when you look at the league table, you know, Mayo's on eight, Roscommon, you know, is on six, Galway, Armagh. A lot of teams now in the middle of that have still a lot to play for because should Armagh happen to lose, they're then pulled into the relegation dogfight because, you know, Tarun Armagh is going to be on six points and then you're looking at head-to-heads and I think probably Division 1 at the bottom is going to be the title it's been for some time and, and I do expect a team on six points probably this season to be relegated. Who's that team going to be, Kenneth? Because you look at the game in Clonus this weekend, Mon and Tyrone, it's, it's got relegation scrap written all over it. You'd, you'd imagine the loser of that game is in, is in serious trouble. And Mon on four yeah, well, points, I think Tyrone is it in three? Yeah, Tyrone's on four. Four, sorry. Four, Mon's on four, Donegal's on three. And I think probably that game will be ultra-final standard. The referee would need nine A's in that game just to keep it under wraps because you know I think familiarity breeds contempt and these teams have played each other every year in the league and, and they've always been really really tight games Tyrone don't want Armagh coming in the last game of the season with the possibility of relegating them you know whereas Mayo Monaghan I think travelled to Kerry on the last day away so there's a lot to be played for in this game because both teams could struggle on the last day um, I think Donegal probably are, are, are going to go down at this stage and I suppose the piece in the, the Irish Examiner this morning with Jim McGuinness probably heaps more pressure on, on a Donegal County board and a team that, that really didn't need it. But I think it will be probably Tyrone to pick up that points. But I think, you know, the job that um, Monaghan have done this year, you know, Vinnie Corey and his brother Martin Hood, who, who's a, a fabulous coach in his own right, you know, I think they've done a really good job after a very difficult start. And I think there still will be a wee bit to play for there. This is really interesting because um, the, the Donegal story, by the way, everybody should check that out. McGuinness basically said that he was going to be part of the, the backroom team if, if Rory Gallagher and uh, Carl Lacey had got the job. But when they pulled out, he said he would still be available to help at least this year um, all the way up to the summer because they're at home at the moment and the county board never rang back. And he makes the point that um, it was really unfortunate that he was name-checked when he thought he was part of a confidential process by the county board, but he was name-checked. And the implication, as he saw it, was that he was unwilling to help. And actually, that's not the case. He is willing to help. And it looks like he's even willing to help the current management team if the offer was to be made. So we might come back to that story. But the whole notion of a team going down to Division 2 and benefiting from a, a confidence booster into next season's Ulster Championship, is it a disaster for Monaghan or Donegal if they were to go down and be the best team in Division 2 next year and to use that as a springboard for Ulster Championship stuff? Or at the moment, is the gap between Division 1 and 2 so pronounced that it would be a bit of a disaster? I don't think it's a complete disaster. I think the top end of Division 2 and the rest of Division 1 is very, very similar. Um, but I think probably just from where Donegal are at at the moment, they just don't need any more trouble or any more hassle. 
you know, and a Paddy Tiar, you know, who's a man who's wanted this Donegal job every single time has come up over the last decade and, and has just been falling short. And he's probably just got the Donegal job at a really poor time. Look, I think Monaghan have been very good. I, I was at uh, Clonus for Monaghan um, and Donegal. And I think there's a lot of pluses in Monaghan. I think O'Hanlon, um, you know, players like that coming back, um, looking at some of the other bits. It's whether McManus can come in now all the time and do it. I think Monaghan have a lot of pluses. You know, Darren Hughes is back, which means Daisy Ward at six isn't as vulnerable as he had been because Daisy Ward has been driving out of six but leaving a gap. Darren Hughes has come in and he's filled that and Monaghan have looked a very, very different team with Darren Hughes in there. But I think it's Monaghan's ability off the bench. You know, Sean Jones has come on. Like he kicked one, two against Donegal in 12 minutes and he's been very good in him. I've seen him. So I think Monaghan have a lot of pluses. You know, they're very young, they're new. And if you take Jack McCarn, who's struggled with injury, but into the mix, like I think regardless of whether Monaghan go down, I think they'll have a major say in the championship as well because they are that sort of team building now. And the longer that Vinnie Curry and Martin Curry has them, I think they will get better as the, the season goes on. Um, again, Keane was making the point in, in preparation for this piece that uh, teams who've gone down in recent seasons have managed to blood a lot of players in the league, whereas Monaghan have, have had to keep their squad quite tight to maintain their Division 1 status and the trade-off is that you're still playing Division 1 football but you've got less fewer players that you've managed to blood through the league so the um, he made the point that in 2021 Monaghan relegated Galway in the final day Joyce blooded Matthew Tierney Carl Sweeney Dylan McHugh and a few others the Dubs obviously got relegated again by Monaghan on the last day Dublin had Lee Gannon Robbie McDade Lorcan Adele who had all been given exposure I think um Monaghan traditionally have used between 22 and 23 players in the league in this period where they've managed to stay up so it's a strategy and in the long run you have to wonder is there a trade-off between actually getting a broader deeper squad particularly now in the more condensed season so what's your what's your instinct about what the right course of action is it's obviously horses for courses but on balance which is, do you think would be the best way yeah well I think it, it depends on where the manager's at you know if it's a manager's first year it's very hard to blood players because he needs to hit the ground running because if he loses the confidence of the people around him, it's very hard to get that back. But if you look at Dublin this year, you know, they've had David O'Hanlon, you know, Dara Newcomb. Would, if they'd have been in Division 1, would those players have got as much time, you know, and would they have looked better last year? You know, Lee Gannon has come through and Dublin have created sort of a gap there. Derry this year have done similar. They've brought in sort of some young players off the bench like Neil O'Donnell, you know, who's just out of minors who had played in the McKenna Cup and, uh, from Ballinger and my own club. So in Division 1, they wouldn't get those chances. And I think it's probably depends on where the trajectory of the management is. If they, like Parik Joyce has a wee bit of credit in the, in the bank, they can do that. If it's a new manager like Vinnie Curry, it's probably harder to, to bring new players in. And, and Division 2 probably is a better place for that. But for teams to win the big competitions, really you need to be in Division 1 playing the better teams week in and week out, just so you know what your strength and depth is like. And I think it's very difficult to come in Division 2 and, and, and probably just push on into that top. Derry done it last year and come very close, ultimately fell a bit short. But I think if you're in Division 1, you have a much better chance because you're playing the better opposition week in and week out. Just over 11,000 sell out of Port Talton and Navin this weekend. Conneth, for, for that Dublin Meath game, the first time they've met in the league in Navin, I think in 35 years, it's going to be some occasion and, and Dublin can secure promotion back to Division 1 if, with a win. Um, from watching the dubs against Derry, are there areas in which they are, I don't want to use the word weaker, but certainly uh, more fallible, I guess, than they have been in recent years? 
Yeah, look, and I think they probably they have been vulnerable at the start of the league from their kickouts as well. It's something you didn't expect from Dublin. You know, I think against Derry, it was probably the best Dublin have been all through the league in that first half. You know, I thought they got their kickouts away under heavy presses at time from Derry. Um, the second half, it malfunctioned a small piece. But look, I think it's going to be a great occasion. Meath have to show something. They started off the league under Colm work. He mapped out what he wanted to do. He wanted to kick ball. He wanted to play long, better flowing football. But I think that has sort of fallen flat as teams have got a wee bit better. Um, like only Limerick have leaked more scores, you know. So like they have a problem at the back and only Kildare have scored less in them division. So I think it's not all rosy. Dublin will ask different questions. Dublin would need to tighten up defensively a wee bit. But I think the likes of McCarthy going back, Merchant, you know, the introduction of Jack McCaffrey has just left Dublin just on a, a different level to where me they're at. You know, and I think if they were to get anything out of this game, I think they would have to play to their very, very maximum. But look, Park Talton, it's a, it's a brilliant venue and I think it's probably going to be a massive occasion, but I just don't see where me are going to get enough scores at them and, and how they're going to stop Dublin because Promotion is still where Desi Farr wants to get to, and I think he'll probably start looking a lot closer to this championship team this week against Meath. Um, can we just go back to, to Derry for the last couple of minutes here, Connor? The the quality of Derry's defence is is the best in the league at the moment, um, just in, in terms of the output. Uh, and obviously, everybody's going to point to the fact, oh, they're, they're just defending in numbers. But that's not the case. It's not just defending in numbers. There's a strategy behind it. It's obviously brilliantly well coached. Everybody understands their role. Why are they better at it at the moment than everybody else? Yeah, I think, firstly, I think they're brilliantly coached at it. Um, and if you look at the Dublin game, Derry had played a very similar style right the way through. But, you know, when you have players that can kick points from range, it's a wee bit harder. I think Derry's willingness to work off the ball has probably set them aside from, right from the McKenna Cup when they played Tyrone. They run them off the park with willingness to work. And Brenton Rogers now, who's released into the middle, when he charges forward, he knows he can do that with a certain amount of confidence because Paul Cassidy is working back for him. You know, um, Lachlan Murray came off the bench the last day and he kicked a great point. And if you followed, if you look at his point again and you follow it back, he put in a tackle right from the kickout on his own 20 metre line. You know, and, and that's stuff that, yes, it's coachable, but the desire for players to do that because they know this is what Rory Gallagher values. And kicking the point won't get you on that dairy team. But the work rate off the ball will. And if you can add the value to the other end, um, it'll be massive. And I think Derry have probably just got it right. They've also played a very consistent team. The Derry team that's playing in the league now is not dissimilar to the played in the first round in the McKenna Cup. And, and because of this shortened season, I don't think you need to sort of mix and match. So Derry's playing the same 17, 18 players all the way through the league. And, and while other teams are experimenting, Derry's not. Derry have been very, very consistent in terms of what they want to do. You know, and, and Chrissy McKeague and you know, once Connor Glass come back and, and Ethan Doherty, you know, it just added serious, serious value to what they were trying to do and, and the pace and power, which is just what their game's built on. When those players come back, I think it just gives Derry a massive, massive boost. Because I've definitely heard the argument on, on the football pod and elsewhere that they're just a little bit short of the scoring power that they're going to need to be able to win in All-Ireland. But the game against Galway last year was really their first big opportunity in Croke Park to announce themselves. And it looks like they just got matchups wrong. But again, to go back to our, our pre-show chat, that's what um, Keane Johnson's making the point that actually if they got the matchups right, then that game's a totally different game. And we're not talking about a side who were overawed by the occasion or who, you know, a goalkeeping howler cost them. It's like 
it's it's nip and tuck against the Galway side who then push Kerry all the way in the All Ireland final. So they're actually much closer. I think the argument is that they're much closer to being genuine All Ireland contenders than they're being given credit for at the moment. Yeah, look, I think so. You know, Derry were four 0 up on that game, and they were cruising. They kicked a couple of really poor wides and taken a, a few bad options, and then the sort of five or ten minutes before half time cost them. So instead of going in at half time three or four points up with the controversial score from Hawkeye, they suddenly found themselves in a difficult position mentally to cope. They hadn't been in Croke Park that often at the very top end when they played in Division Two and Three finals. It hadn't been in Division One, and I think where Derry are at now. The Dublin game was massive in Celtic Park. And if they can not slip up against Clare, they're looking at another game against the Dubs in Crook Park. And that is where this Derry team are going to learn at the very top end. And there may be another lesson somewhere down the line to be learned, maybe in a league final. But I think all of the stuff that Derry are doing now is building towards a bigger day and a better day. And I think Crook Park is where this team needs to be. Yes, you're right. Probably when the game was going away from them, they didn't have the strength and depth coming off the bench, but I think that has improved. You know, I think Matthew Downey, you know, who has been caught with injuries, hasn't really played as much this year. I think he's a player that to watch out for. Lachlan Murray's came off the bench. Ushie McWilliams came off the bench. He kicks the last day. So I think the belief that those players have now with another season, and especially beating Dublin, because it was the real statement when I know winning Ulster was massive, but going and a Dublin team that needed to win that game as well and beating them in a game they both wanted to win, I think that'll do Derry the world of good. And, and probably going into the break week with that win was massive as well because Derry were able to maybe take their foot of the gas a wee bit, relax, whereas Dublin have had to sort of go hell for leather because they can't really afford to slip up against me or else, you know, because Cork's coming strong behind them. Yeah. And, you know, if Derry happened to win on Sunday, they probably travelled to Cork with a weakened team. So Dublin want to get it done this week. And I think probably the break week is something they've probably had to work a wee bit harder than some of the teams uh, like Mio and Derry and, and maybe Leash and, and Cavan and other divisions that top the group. Connacht at the other end of Division 2 briefly uh, like jerry has been crying into his cornflakes here every morning thinking about the, the thought of Kildare in, in the Talton Cup um, like that's a huge game 3.45 on Sunday against Limerick uh, down there I think it is in Limerick as well uh, look bit of turmoil in, in Limerick football this week with Ray Dempsey's departure a bit of player unrest Mark Fitzgerald who was part of his backroom team a Kerry man has come in to take over for the rest of the year like this game is is, is huge for Kildare and their year ahead essentially yeah, look, it's massive. And I suppose a lot's been made of how poor Kildare have been at the back. You know, how poor they've been up front and having not scored goals. And when you've likes of Neil Flynn and, and Derek Kerwin and, and, and Paul Cribben and players like that, you wonder just what's going wrong. You know, like they got the management team they wanted and the excitement that, that, that followed that. But they have really fallen flat. Um, and they were lucky enough to get the win, I think, that time against Clare. So like, they could have been in a worse position. Um, but it's a must-win game and it doesn't even guarantee them anything other than the loser well if they lose this game they're gone Limerick's gone anyway um, and they've put themselves under a huge pressure you know I genuinely don't like hearing of players votes and, and things like that because they've put themselves under pressure um, obviously Mark Fitzgerald was there he knows the ins and outs of it so he's probably in a good enough place but you know after last year and, and, and Billy Lee and, and the journey they've been on the last two or three years transition has probably been hard for everybody and you know, and Ray Dempsey been so close to getting uh, the Mio job. You know, you just wonder what is going on in there. But look, this is massive. Kildare probably do need to get their house in order defensively straight away because they have forwards. And you think those forwards are eventually going to click and they're going to score because good players, the class will always rise to the top. But form 
is something they really stuck for. And the fact that the championship is leading so quickly out of this, if you go into that in bad form, I just don't see how you get out of it because you don't have three or four weeks like you would have had previously to play a challenge match or two and get yourself up and running. So the end of league form will be where a team's at for championship. And it's just hard to see Kildare getting themselves out of this trouble at this stage. But the one thing you have, when you've scored forward, you always have a chance. And, and, and Flynn has been injured a wee bit and, and Woodgate has been missing. So if they could get those players back, I think they stand a very good chance. But they're in a very difficult position. And, and Limerick are coming. New managers, whether it be Premier League or always get a bounce. And if Limerick can get a bounce, it's going to put Kildare in a very precarious position. And, and again, and, and not to be disrespectful to the Talton Cup, because I know a lot of the chat is around that teams do want to be. Like, I think the Talton Cup has been brilliant. And I think the rhetoric around teams not wanting to be there, you are where you are based on the form you're in. And if you find yourself in opposition, you have to make the best of that situation for me. Did you have any views, Conneth, on the, the, the uh, diving scourge that seems to have reared its ugly head in, in Gaelic games of, of, of late? Like we, we saw in incidents with uh, Conor Cox of Roscommon and, and Galway's Sean Kelly. Uh, the last day out, I think, where players are going down very easily. I know Eamon Fitzmaurice was making the point that maybe referees need to start dishing out cards for, for players that are diving. Like You're involved at club level. I don't know if it's, if it's a massive issue there as well, but how do you see this being fixed? Look, I think it's a massive level at every bit of football and and probably when you look at things that happened in, at senior inter-county level, it's followed by younger players and it's taken into the club game. I think there's always been people living on the edge, players lived on the edge. You know, I've done it myself. You get a bit of contact from behind. You go down because you, you want the free. But I think that's slightly different from being pushed in the chest and holding your face or, or being hit on the shoulder and go down holding your head. I think that has to be stamped out because... The stakes are too high now for teams and referees need help because in normal time, a lot of these incidents do look like genuine hits or assaults or call them what you want. But when you slow them down, you're nothing in them. So it's very, very hard for referees, linesmen and umpires at the pace the game's played in now to probably get it right all the time. But I think it has to be stamped out. And the thing is, what's going, what you're probably going to see this weekend with the talk about it is one or two players are going to get charged for simulation or diving and that may go a wee bit towards them and that but look I think it's a problem that's been in the game forever you know there's always been a player getting a heavy hit and if he thinks it's advantageous to his team he's going to lay down that wee bit extra and in many cases if he didn't do it he would probably be castigated because the opposition have been down to 14 men so look I think this weekend it'll probably stamp out a wee bit I think it's a problem but I don't think it's a massive issue in the way it's been portrayed. I think players have always played to the edge and where there's a real advantage to be had, players will take it. Conor, great stuff. Enjoy the games this weekend. Thanks a million, man. All right. Thanks, James. See you. See you, Conor Gilligan, giving us his thoughts there this morning um, on a range of topics. Uh, Derry, uh, genuine all around contenders. Yeah. I fancy them big time. Like uh, It's not easy to defend your an Ulster title, but uh, I, I can't see past Derry this year. Um, and they also don't need to, obviously. Do you know? No, if, that's if, true, yeah. No matter what happens in Ulster, it, it it's largely irrelevant when it comes to their All Ireland credentials. I think they were so disappointing in the in the All Ireland semi final last year against Galway. I thought, but uh, Galway showed up on the day. I just that experience will stand to them. Um, yeah, I, I, Jesus, I'm going to be watching Division Two very, very closely this weekend. The relegation battle that Kildare Limerick match is going to be 
Cracker, all, all right, Shane, don't, don't, <laughs> shut up. Uh, OTBAM with Gillette Labs, get the ultimate shave or your money back, Neon Night Edition, available now. Um, Sean McGoldrick uh, is tweeting this morning that de- dreams do come true in boxing. Kildare native Dennis Hogan will fulfil his lifetime ambition of defending a world title on home soil on the undercard of the Taylor Cameron Show in the Three Arena on the 20th of May. Takes on James Metcalf in his first defence of the IBO Super Welterweight title. He's got an incredible story. Uh, Dennis Hogan so we wish him the very best of that and uh, interesting to see how quickly tickets sell out for the fight in the three arena on the 20th of May um, uh, yeah I don't know I don't know I haven't I have mm. no sense at the moment yet of um, it'll sell out in no time surely I don't know when the tickets are on sale exactly but um, yeah I suppose they have to wait for the full undercard to be announced but it's going to be a cracking night and then Croke Park maybe later in the year September October time that'll be nice Coming up on tomorrow's show, Fiona Hayes, Graham Hunter, Vinnie Perth, JD live from Cheltenham. You had to be there, Philippe Claire, and plenty more besides right now. Dan McDonald on last night's football show. Have a gorgeous day. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.